This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show... One of the members of the UF Gators football team in the glory years with Tim Tebow, podcaster, strength and conditioning coach, and the co-founder of the Gym Owners Revolution, John Fairbanks. Now, if you haven't looked already, this podcast ended up being four and a half hours long. And the reason being, John has a storied career. So we discuss the early years of his football career at University of Florida. We talk about his journey into teaching and his perspective on education today, strength and conditioning, building a business in the fitness industry. The list goes on and on. So I urge you to listen to the entire conversation. You will be engaged anyway, but it was four and a half hours of solid gold. Now, before we get to the interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 830 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you John Fairbanks. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for coming on. You and I have had such an unusual kind of interaction through social media, and then your family came to visit my last fire department when we were at Disney, um, mm -hmm. and then kind of, you know, the, the Strong Fit community, and then this documentary comes out, 
you start a new podcast and then the universe is like, you know, oh yeah, you know, and then I, I tell this to a lot. I, there's lots and lots of people that I want to talk to and it always seems to be the perfect time that everything lines up and again now now is when we were supposed to talk and this is obviously with this documentary that i just binge watched the last two days as well another element of so many things that we're going to talk about so huge monologue but i want to welcome you to uh the behind the shield podcast today uh, james i really appreciate you having me i've loved listening to all of the episodes and everything you bring bringing the light like it's it's um it's awesome so I'm, I'm honored to be able to hang out so where on planet earth are we finding you today so I am in uh, Virginia. I'm about 30 minutes outside of the University of Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Shenandoah Valley. Brilliant. Well, I know that's not where you were born. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So I was born in Palm Springs, California. So Southern California, Palm Desert, Palm Springs area, um, ultimately grow up in Orange County, California. So Dana Point, Laguna Niguel, um, Newport Beach. So this is like the OC and ends up being kind of the the um, same time period that like the OC hit. So that you have like Laguna Beach, reality TV shows start popping off. And um, so that's that time period that I was there. And um, my family, so I have one sibling and then my mom and my dad, when I grew up, they owned a, um, before like the UPS store and FedEx stores became FedEx Kinkos and all that stuff became a thing. They had their own like mom and pop version of that. That was called the mailroom. They ran that and they ran mail and plush. And, uh, you know, this is before, like, I think even before staples, right, is the thing. So they had like supplies for school and all that kind of stuff. So they owned that business for a number of years when I was growing up. And then my mom ultimately ended up working for Disney. So she ended up moving over and working for Disney and then worked for Disney for the rest of my life until she retired there. That was Disney uh, Anaheim. So Disney and Anaheim, so Disneyland, so she started off at Disneyland on Main Street and their main stores there and then went to Disney California Adventure, which is right the, the park that's right across the way. Um, and then when I came to Florida, um, she transferred. So the whole family essentially kind of followed and came out to Florida. She just transferred to Disney World and she worked for um, Hollywood Studios, MGM Studios and um, Magic Kingdom and then ultimately the Boardwalk, right? All those hotels on that damn area. So that's why when we got to come and visit you, it was literally like down the street where grandma is at, you know, being able to hang out. So she was still working when you came to visit? Yeah. Is she there now or is she retired? No, she retired now because they, you know, uh, aging parents, the deal, writing is on the wall. Uh, she was taking care of her mother. And it was one of those things where you just have my own aging parents are taking care of aging parents. And now they're the only ones in Florida. My brother's not there. I'm not there. I'm in Virginia. So I'm like, you guys have got to come to us. You got to come up and be here. So now in this little area that we had, no one from my family exist. I have multiple generations. I have three generations, four generations of family all now living in this one little town um, here in Virginia, which is great to have all that family support and, and be able to support them as they uh, have to doctor's appointments and all that kind of stuff. So I obviously got to see behind the curtain of Disney. There are some people yeah. that absolutely adored working for that organization. Um, there are a lot of people that didn't so much, you know. Um, certainly, you know, there was some some stories of people kind of getting close to actually uh, earning their retirement and then getting let go prior to that. So you know, there are some yeah. bad stories. However, there's a, I know there's a lot of people that really enjoyed it, and it was their kind of dream 
job now that your mom transitioned out when she reflects did she enjoy her time there i think she did my mom did a really um she was like rule follower to the nth degree so what we call like as a hall monitor so she did beautifully at disney <laughs> and and uh but she 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 saw the writing on the wall so my mom made it through several layoff periods right and so she was able as she worked her way up at minimum wage when i was a kid of like truly even after owning her own store and doing tons of things of handling you know processing and merchandising and, and doing all those pieces she still had to start at minimum wage and then as she worked her way up into management i remember there were several periods of just layoffs especially in a right 08 09 was when i got really gnarly and um she always just said, she goes, I think I'll stay right here. She goes, because if I go one layer higher or two layers higher, they always get fired. So she kind of just saw that writing on the wall and kind of strategically just stayed, uh, stayed put. And what was the best part, best case uh, scenario for her was when she transferred from California to Florida, she um, kept the same role, but structurally speaking, um, management wise, it was like two clicks lower then in California. So California, she was like right there at that dangerous level. And then when she went to Florida, she still stayed at the same pay, but then went two le levels down in seniority. Um, so she was able to at least work a little bit higher up, but for sure she had multiple um, managers and people that were above her that she loved that absolutely got canned. And there were like, just, it was, it was, ter it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Like she had tons of those stories of it being terrible, but um, she worked for Disney for a while. My brother worked for Disney for a while. He was a skipper on, um, the jungle cruise. Oh, so we really? have like these old, we have these old videos of him doing all the cheesy like puns and stuff when my babies were little. Um, but I would say overall they're po They were really positive about yeah. being, of working with Disney. Well, there's a parallel, obviously, when we get to UF, we were talking before, before we hit record. So I'll kind of hold that portion for now. Um, with your sure. parents having the mailroom though. Have you ever had any conversations, I'm sure when they were, you know, with their business, we were still sending a lot of letters, then email comes along and letters diminish, but then now we've come full circle with Amazon, where now yeah. it's all about the packages and I would assume those businesses are booming again. So have you ever talked to them about, you know, the last 20 years through their eyes? I don't think it was one of those things where it, I don't know if they were ever super passionate about um like the postal service and all that kind of thing. I think it was, you know what I mean? I think it was a means to an end. I think the most amount of money they truly made was like gift wrapping for people. Oh, like really? My, when Christmas time came, it was bring your packages because they sold gift wrap, but it was like, we'll wrap your presents for you. I mean, I remember my mom like gift wrapping presents for like 12 hours a day, like leaving early at like 3 a.m. just to go gift wrap more presents because there's so many people that had packages that needed to be wrapped. And so um, talk about just like the epitome of, of like a skill that is so like, you could just, you can do this, you know, it's like, no, 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 I'd rather pay somebody to, to gift wrap the presents. Um, but definitely it was interesting just watching kind of my dad um, as, as they sold that mailroom, he kind of was part of that, trying to figure out where he fit in that technological, um, all those technological changes and advances and those types of things. Like he's worked so many different gigs of trying to like whether he was a, a medical transcription writer where he would type out notes from doctors from home 
Um, like he he's been doing a working from home style job since 2000. So like it just is, it's been very interesting to see him navigate, whether it's customer care, customer service, working from home, being a real estate agent, like all those elements that he can kind of figure out where mom was able to just get into Disney's system and then just kind of systematically work that system. Um, but it was a sacrifice that my dad made, I think, consciously to where it's like in the, uh, if you were looking from afar, you look at it not through the right lens, you could say it was like, did you just chose to just take terrible jobs? But I think truthfully, deep down, it just was, he wanted to be around. He wanted to be able to not sacrifice or miss games or practices or those things where he's just, he was always around. So my family growing up built such a intense foundation for um, whatever I wanted to do, they would help me do it. And it just was never like, you know, you're not going to do this. Like I've seen having coached and been around so many different style athletes and so many families and parents, it's, it just kills me to watch people be um, dream robbers. And so for me, it's just like, you don't, you don't get to say that to people. Like kids are smart. They'll figure it out. Like, it's like, if their dream is to play for LSU on their offensive line, but you know, Billy is just not going to get much taller than six foot and much heavier than 185 pounds. Billy will figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like Billy knows and Billy's going to not, will adjust that dream accordingly. You don't need to have these dream robbers or these people that just feel like, well, no, like they need to be woken up. They need to be told. And it's like, no, they don't shut your mouth. Like it's just let them be just support. And that, and it comes from just cause I was so supported in that way while still having family members that didn't, that felt over overly um, zealous to the fact that where they had to make sure I knew that I was too fat and I was too slow and I was too dumb that I just wasn't going to do anything worthwhile. And I'm grateful for those people because it really fueled, right? That hatred that allowed me to do a lot of great things. So at the flip side, I would have been devastated to have parents that were that way. But it was very helpful to have horrible adults that were around me enough <laughs> to, to give me that motivation. But my parents really did. And I think my dad did that. And it's as we talk about more about my story is my dad had made huge sacrifices to just put me in the best possible position to be able to be successful. Well, firstly, I would have used your mom when she was doing the gift wrapping anytime because my best <laughs> attempt looks like a raccoon just pulled it out of a dumpster. So I don't know my, why I can't fold paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, that that ability to be present and be home, that was, you know, one of the things that came out of my transition from the fire service. There were a lot of compounding factors and it was frustration of trying to make a difference and swimming upstream. But also it was walking the walk. You know, it was about that valuing sleep and some of these other things and being present. And the basically the last five years now I've been home. So my son just turned 16, you know, so that's from 11 to 16. As he's transitioning from child to man, I've actually got to be home. And I think I admire your dad. If that was what he did, one of my guests yesterday, Brett Sobierski, I think I'm trying to remember how he pronounced it. I think it's Sobierski. Um, his dad was a cop and had a full-time job and he was working like 100-hour weeks. He admired his work ethic, but he never saw his father, which is more important. So I, I salute your father, to be honest. Yeah. And for me, being a dad now to three young boys, 
there's a lot of decisions that I do make that are very conscious where it's like, well, we need, we, we need more money or we want more money and we want to do these things, but it's like, but I'm not willing to sacrifice nights. I'm not willing to sacrifice being able to work or being able to coach and be around them and do these things. Cause you have, if you have enough old people in every aspect of your life that says it goes by so fast, like do these things. Like it's, I throw the ball with my boys before school. Like I'll throw the baseball with them and we're out in the front yard or whatever. And just literally just so we can get some energy out before they had to get on the bus. And we do that. We've done it for years. And it's the old people constantly are like, this is so great. It's so great that you do this. And it's just like, I'm doing this so my wife doesn't kill them before they get on the bus. <laughs> like it's just like it's a, a, a sitting, but I also am not naive enough to like, like no, like there's a, a bigger purpose of doing some of these things that um, that just matter. You have enough people to say it is kind of like, all right, if I choose not to try and do some of this or do some of it, it's almost like you're just uh, you're just squandering any of that good advice that you've been getting your entire life or people desperately are trying to give you the advice. A lot of, uh, you're just too busy to hear it. Well, you said dream killer as well. I mean, I, I see that. And again, when I look back at my childhood, there were pros and there were cons, like most of ours. But one thing that my mom especially did very well was she just had that shoot for the moon mentality. I mean, truly. And so I was never by my family told, oh, you can't do that thing. And I discovered, for example, I wanted to be a doctor um because i want to be a firefighter they told me i was colorblind they said you can't be a firefighter i'm like oh i'll be a doctor then that sounds easy <laughs> so went there <laughs> realized that i have zero capacity for any sort of advanced mathematics and that was the end of that journey but like you said you know the the smaller guy want to be a linebacker well maybe he finds himself into bobsleigh and it was all that right. training for the same thing pushing for momentum that took him on a different route that he never envisioned and so what i don't see from a lot of conversations these days is you can be anything. And I point this out, like it used to be when we were young, you could be prime minister or president. Now, sure. no one wants to be <laughs> the last two that we've had. A lot you of know, good examples. Yeah, I mean, you, so this is the thing. We need the astronauts and the firefighters and the cops and the soldiers and the teachers and the sports stars and you know the, the poets and the chess players and everyone to be like, I was a kid just like you. You just... Think about what you would want to do more than anything else. Actually, in my, I do a journal every morning and the quote, and I'm going to butcher it, was something like, uh, a passion only began, becomes a job if you were wishing you were doing something else. <laughs> and I was I like, like that. Yeah, it was something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but, but that's just it. What was it? That, what would you want to do? What is your burning desire? Like my next book, my vision is to turn it into a film or TV show. I haven't even finished the book yet, but that's where I want it to go because I, that's where you get the eyeballs. And to me, it's like, well, why not? Everyone else that makes films and television and writes books are people that went to school, you know, and got the bus and had a dog and we're all the same. So how dare you piss on the dreams of someone because you don't think that that person is, is able to get there. All you know is the Instagram highlights of the people that you admire. You didn't see where they started. So mm -hmm. I think we need so much more you can, lifting kids up rather than this eye-rolling kids today participation trophy bullshit that we hear, which just discourages kids from actually believing in themselves. Yeah, there, there's a quote that Tim shares at the start of one of the episodes in the Swamp Kings docuseries. And he go, he's talking about how he shouldn't have been born. 
right? But his parents don't abort him. He's born. And his parents just from a very young age just said, yes, you're a miracle baby. And God has sent you here to do amazing things. And he goes, do you know what happens to a kid that has told their whole life that they're going to do amazing things? They start to believe it. And it's like, it's for me, it's like, yes, all the yes, all the things, but it's so con it's so counter to our lived experience, like the, how the media wants us to believe, like what, what light, how, how you hear or see things where it just is kids are just not lifted up in that way. And it just isn't that hard to just be like, you're going to do amazing. <laughs> like you're going to be incredible, man. Like, don't worry. Like we've got, and that's where just my wife always is worried along with every other good wife on and mother on the planet is worried that they are fucking their kids up. They're doing a terrible job. They're the worst mom that's ever lived and they're no good at it. And that's every mom on planet earth. And I just tell her, I'm like, listen, I'm like, you don't, you just have, we have to love them. Like we just have to love them and just support whatever it is that they want to do. I'm like, the bar is so low and it's so free frightening because the book of parenting is blank. And we get to write those pages, every page of the way that we go. And it's terrifying when you're holding that first baby that like can't do anything and you're, you're going to break it. You just know I'm going to break it. I'm going to break it. And it's, and you don't break it. And then the baby keeps going and then they get bigger. So it's been for me, being a dad has been so awesome having them go through these different phases and just knowing, like, I just, I just know you just have to (laughs) just tell them you're going to do awesome and we're going to love you and it's okay. And we'll just help you do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, but there's so much damage that gets passed on and passed down from that, that, that lug. And that's where, again, I feel very fortunate where it just is. I didn't, I don't have a whole bunch of, I have, everyone has baggage, but the baggage that I have, I think is just, I was had such good examples of what to do. And I think it's, we can, but it takes collectively. It's going to take all of us as a community, because that's why I fell in love working with at-risk youth or working with kids that were on the islands of misfit toys or were throwaways where they felt like they were throwaways, whether it was the military school kids or kids that were like on the east side of town or whatever it was, because they just hadn't had someone say, you're doing great. Like, hey, you're doing awesome. Like you've got an A, like way to go. Like it's to kind of be in their corner because everybody, all the adults in their life just had so much shit that they were dealing with that they just didn't have time to try and worry about the little ones. I, through my son's life, like there's been academic years in middle school where, I think it was middle school, the end of elementary, where he almost got held back. I mean, he was very young for his age and just developmentally, you know, was a little bit high behind on speech, on reading, on writing. And so fought tooth and nail to stay in that, that school year. And I always told him, I am so proud of the work you put in. I don't care about what letter is on your your report right. card if you end up having to you know to hold back a year then it is what it is but as long as you're working hard and as long as you're being kind to other people those are the two tenants that are important to me you're never going to win the attendance award because we're always going to travel the world and i'm going to take you out of school that's more important to me you know you may not win the academic achievement award but the holistic human being which I'd, i've actually read i think it was your bio when you were a teacher is still on the internet and that's what you were talking about the holistic child 
that is what's most important. You know, mm-hmm. academia is just one of many, many pillars of a child's physical, mental wellness and ability to achieve. And of course, certain ladders, they're quite academic focused. However, there are so many different routes. And if a child's passion is like mine was in the end to be a doctor, it wasn't to be a doctor. Actually, what I envisioned, I didn't realize it was to be a paramedic. And that doesn't require a high level of mathematics. It, it requires a community college education and the ability to, you know, work under pressure and work in a team and other things. So that, I mean, just like you said, empowering these kids and not using academic, you know, rigid academic alphabets to decide if your child is worthy or not. I think that's that's mm-hmm. a hard lesson because around us, if you're not winning college championships in, in football or you're not winning spelling bees and, you know, smashing the FSA, then is how does your child feel successful if they're told these are the pillars of success? So I think it's mm-hmm. so important for us to empower kids. Take away education. Imagine your kid was, was grown 100 years ago. What would you tell them good job for? They're kind. They, they work hard. I mean, all these things that, you know, were around a long before a schoolhouse was ever even conceived. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have we have a lot of very upfront conversations with my son's teachers because I don't it's the worst thing ever when you were a teacher was to have someone come in and be like, well, I was a teacher. You're like, oh, were you? (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait to hear whatever it is you're about to tell me. Um, So I don't ever lead with that. And I don't ever say it ever to the teachers. And it just is for it's just like, please understand up front that it's we do not care about his grades. It's like, but please understand what does matter to us is how hard he's working and how he is working in the classroom with you and in your community of students. Like, that's it. Those are the only two things that matter. And so it is one of, and it is how we've raised our boys up to this point, which is, is we don't care. It's like, hey, dad, I got an A. And it's like, yeah, but I, you didn't, like, I don't even think you worked on that at all. He's like, yeah, but it was like, you know, it was open book test. And it was like, okay, well, then there's no kudos to be given for the open book <laughs> test or the, like, whatever, right? But it is, it, it, there's so many times where it's like, man, we worked really hard and studied for whatever, math or science, whatever it was going to be. And he just uh, barely gets a B or gets a C or whatever it is. It's like, dude, you work so hard on that. All this tells us is where you're at right now. And we'll get you there. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it's just, you worked hard. That's all that we care about. Because for, for me, like, that was, I wasn't the best athlete. So my attitude on any of these things, and I wasn't the best student either, but it was like, I worked incredibly hard. So my attitude always just was, I will outwork you. Like if, if, if we're even, I will beat you and I'll beat you because I will just do more. I'll do more. I'll do it harder. It's I, I won't be beat when it comes to the level that I'm willing to put into it and the amount of work that I'm willing to put into it. So for me, it's like, that is a thing that I think was just in me. And I, that's the bar that I'm holding for my boys. It's like, it's no, listen, you're going to work. You're not going to be the fastest. You're not going to be the strongest, but you will work the hardest. So that's where it's like, it's, you can run on and off the field. It's a non-skill issue. It's an effort issue. There's skill problems and there's effort problems. We're not going to have effort problems. Our effort will always be there and skill will come next. Well, speaking of athletics and football, walk me through your journey from, you know, the the school system up to high school and then how that took you to the University of Florida. So we were um, so I grew up in Southern California. And so the first sports that I really played was volleyball. 
So men's volleyball is super normal for the West Coast. And um, I grew up, my grandparents were um, boosters and donors for UCLA. So it gave me really, really unique experiences early on as a young kid where I got to be around college athletes all the time. So like um, scholarship dinners where the donors get to go and the boosters get to go eat with those scholarship athletes. Like sometimes I would get to go with grandpa and grandma. So like I got to go and JJ Stokes played for the 49ers for a number of years, was a wide receiver and he was one of their scholarship athletes. So I got to, as a little, little, little kid, getting to meet all these athletes and seeing them and and being a part of it. So I was going to UCLA football games. Um, You know, the guy that sat in front of us at all the football games was the head coach for UCLA's men's volleyball program. It's like the most winningest college coach named Al Skates. He won something crazy like 17, 18, 19 national championships. So I was seeing national championship rings, you know, his wife had one on a necklace and had them for earrings or whatever it was <laughs> like, he so had many. so many, right? <laughs> like they just like chopped off the, you know, like, cause the, the way the rings sit, right? Like they're going to be, they'll just have like, you know, a crest that sits on top of the ring that you can pull off. So like they've just had, it was everywhere. Right. And so that was normal, right? That was, a, that was what my normal was of being around these people that just achieved crazy things athletically. And, um, you know, the one, one of their wide receivers that they had had one year, like his wife was an Olympic volleyball player. And so you get to just be around these people. And so growing up, going to all these different things, I really wanted to play. I always wanted to play football. So like my parents weren't, my mom played, you know, softball in high school and could have gone to college to play golf, but it wasn't the time period where you went to college to play women's athletics. Like it just wasn't like, she just op- chose not. To, I think she had even had a scholarship. She was like, "No, like I'm not going to do that." And then my dad, like, no athletics in his background at all. Like he was the band kid, and for whatever reason, I came out just being like, "I want to do football." Where we were in California, though, you couldn't. Um, they had it was Junior All American was the league that was in our area, so it's like Pop Warner and all that kind of stuff. So like Junior All-American was the league that was there. They had weight limits. I was a festively plump young man growing up. Like I was- I like that term, I was by a, the way. Festively I plump was, makes me think of a delicious I, turkey. <laughs> that's it. I was a delicious turkey for quite a while. And um, so like fourth grade, I was 180, 185 pounds. Like give you reference, right? So I was, I was, enor- I was huge. And the problem was, is that the weight limits for- football were like topped out eighth graders playing tackle football when you were a kid was 175 pounds. So it's like, well, if everybody wanted me to play, all the parents were like, are you having your son play or whatever? But it's like, yeah, when he was in third grade, he'd be playing with the seventh graders. My parents were like, we're not going to do that. It doesn't sound like a good idea. No, no. And so I just didn't, I got to watch. So I watched and was at the games and doing all things and just continued to just love football. Loved it. But so I just played whatever sports I could only to get better at football because the goal was always to go to the NFL. So everything I did was always in a step for football. So I'm going to play volleyball because in volleyball, you can stay. And it never was a conversation. There's so much conversation nowadays of like, we need to keep the kids active. 
need kids to keep the kids moving, keep them active. Like, I don't remember that ever being like a conversation for us back in like the nineties. It just was, you played sports because you liked playing sports. Like it wasn't so like we could stay active and moving. And it wasn't like we were, uh, we didn't have video game consoles around. We didn't like live, eat and breathe the way it is nowadays. But like I had an N64 whenever that came out, like we had that in the house, but my love to play sports just kept it always balanced. It wasn't like a, well, this is now all that I do. And I now am going to live in the basement. This is all I'm going to do now. Like that wasn't on the menu. Well, just to jump in as well, when you said about not framing sports as a way of moving, keeping fit, whatever. I mean, the original name is game. It's a game of football, right. for example. Um, right. Because you weren't in this system trying to be groomed at that point, was it the element that you were enjoying sports because you were playing these games that that gave you that that balance rather than you know some of the, the youth athletes now that are just you know drilling like they are in the NFL but they're only ten? No, for sure. And it was like, and it also remember, I'm a 185 pound fourth grader. I don't know if you've seen men volleyball, but that's not what they look like. Like you're not you're not rotund meatballs out there playing volleyball like these are these dudes are look like professional swimmers like men's volleyball is what you can get a men's volleyball and they will jump with the best basketball players on the planet like it just like these dudes are freaks and if you've not ever seen men's volleyball because where you grow up has been where it's a girl's sport or people men don't do that it's watch just the the <laughs> just the sheer power and explosiveness that explosiveness that comes with like a men's volleyball player hitting like an outside spot, <laughs> hitting the ball at the other team. Like it'll break your face. Like it's, it's crazy. So it was, but I just loved it. So my point of saying all that was like, it's no, it wasn't, it was, I had no business like love. And I just loved, I loved playing volleyball, like volleyball to this day. I still really enjoy that sport. And, um, but it hurt. Again, if you're, if you're a little dude and you're real heavy like that and growing, right? So I grew, you know, growing and I've always been, you know, the tallest or second tallest in the class. So like I sit at six, six, five right now, like six, five, two ninety five is like where I sit right now. And that's, and, like, and that's, and, lean. So, and that's yeah, leaner than it was certainly when I played right for, for football, for, uh, in college, it was right. They can, they'll make you whatever you need to be. So when I was the field goal. It was like, no, we need you like 315. Like we need you as big as you, like we'll just make you big. And um, and so based off that size, but when you're a little guy, that hurts. Like your knees hurt, your knees hurt and you got growing pains and all that. But I, I loved it. I loved playing. So, so did lots of volleyball and then eventually gets introduced to basketball. And it was brutal because basketball, it just was like the team that I had tried out for at school. The coaches just, they just wanted to win. So it just was like, so that was, that was one of my early experiences with someone that wasn't like in the fan. I had a couple of family members that were pretty rough when I was little for being as chunky as I was, um, that were like extended family. But this was the first time I had a coach just be like, well, you're too, son, you're too fat. You can't play basketball. You're too fat. And I remember that was pretty like, it's, it wasn't like I was a secret. Like I'd been made fun of for being a fat kid at like school is school is a great indicator for whatever you're like problems might be, or that you could be emotionally vulnerable to like school, will let you know, like public school, will make sure you're very clear on whatever your problems are. And so I was very aware, but I never had an adult just come out and just be like, you're a fat kid. And that's why you're not making the team. You're too slow. You're too fat. 
And, and I remember being like, that sucks. Like that's super, that super sucks. And so like, I, but, but I wanted to play basketball. And so I played volleyball, basketball, and then um, ultimately get into middle school and um, now start to lean out a little bit more. Now I'm sick and tired of being told I was fat. Now I'm sick and tired of these things. So I do what is always highly recommended and um, which is you starve yourself and only drink slim fast shakes for a year. Cause I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. And this was the time period where like slim fast was the popular. So we had them in the house. So I'm like, well, I could just not eat all day. And then if I go home, I'll eat dinner. So mom and dad really won't be aware that I'm not eating all day. And I'll just have a slim fast shake for lunch. And then I'll play really hard at recess. And the only goal was to lose weight. Like it just was, but because I wanted to be like, like at this point, we're now in eighth grade. And again, I, I had said earlier, it was like, I played volleyball. So my footwork would get better for football because as I learned and I, and I would listen to football players, again, like UCLA football players and UCLA athletes, it was, you know, there was one guy that we had named Danny Farmer, who was a wide receiver for UCLA and also was on the volleyball team. So he's a dual sport athlete at UCLA. And, you know, up to that point, like Jackie Robinson was the only one that I knew that did that. Like played multiple sports in college. And I'm like, that's awesome. So talking to him, he talked all the time about how like volleyball helped him be a better wide receiver. And like at this point, JJ Stokes now plays for the 49ers. And we're hearing about how he's taken like ballet lessons in the off season. I'm like, that sounds why. And it was like, well, because this, that, and the other, because it helps him understand how to move his body and do all those things. So for me, it was always just hearing these lessons and being like, oh, so I could just do lots of different things that are unique. And it always helps me towards my number one goal. So for me, it was always tied to that. And so basketball then was like, I really like basketball. Again, this was a good time period to be in Southern California because Kobe and Shaq were together. So you got to see like a domination happening. And again, a big guy dominating. So being able to be like, well, then I can work my footwork here and then I'll continue to be able to just continue to get in shape and do all these things. And so between volleyball, basketball, and then football, um, that's what I played mainly. And so I, I've been on the, the sidelines for football, can't wait to play. And then we start hearing like, oh, well, UCLA has a football camp, like a summer football camp. You go, you stay in the dorm for a couple of days and um, you go and you get to play and the coaches will coach you for a couple of days. And so my family's like, do you want to do that? And I said, well, yeah. And so like, well, we have to tell, we're going to tell everybody that you're a ninth grader, but you're actually eighth grader. And are you okay with telling everybody? I'm like, absolutely. Like at this point, it's like, absolutely. So we like go bypass. I've never played football ever before in my life. And so we go to the UCLA football camp and they have like whatever their 12 year old go and stay in the dorms with all the high school kids, like 18 year old men that are playing football, trying to get scholarships, whatever. And so I go out and I, my dad goes, cause my dad went and didn't stay with me in the dorms, but he would come to all the practices and, and watch. And he goes, I watched you go ass over tea kettle for three solid days. Cause I've just, I've never done any of it before. And I'm just getting smashed, like smashed. And I was in heaven. I was so in love because it just was my whole life. I've been getting in trouble for hurting kids. You're playing on the playground. Yo, Jamie John's too rough. You know, we hurt the kid. I'm in the principal's office, but everyone knew like for me, my personality was, I was super kind and I was, I wasn't an aggressive kid on, but for me, it was like, no, like this is a place you can be aggressive. 
And not only do you not get in trouble, but they reward you for it. It's a little bit like the uh, clips in uh, Russell Crowe's Gladiator. Where's like an, and and the old the old timey gladiator is like kind of talking to him like listen dude like this isn't just about killing like you got to do it with flair like and they'll love you for it like you'll be rewarded for it like it's that was what I learned very early on and I learned that I loved to be hit as much as I loved hitting so just there was no aspect to the game besides running besides running which was the worst <laughs> but there's no aspect and there's no aspect to the game at all that I disliked. And so I, of course, as soon as I got a taste of it, I was hooked. And so then I show up and play in high school for the first time and then um, had success. Just if we, we were a big enough school or had enough kids playing football. We had a freshman team for just football. It was like just freshman team. Then you had a JV team and then you had a varsity team uh, for football. So I played freshman year. And then after my freshman year, well, they went into playoffs. It was super exciting, right? I got pulled up as a freshman, to, like go with the team to the varsity team for the playoffs. And then by sophomore year, I was starting and just played both ways or whatever. And just did that throughout all of high school. Um, but I talk about this a lot because it's, you have a lot of like the pop one or young families that feel so obsessed with putting their kids through tackle football at a young age. And just as like, dude, I didn't, I didn't start playing football until I was in ninth grade. Like I just wasn't allowed, but please understand that it's, I was just waiting in the wings and all those kids that got to play all those years that were hot shit and everyone thought they were so great and they're so amazing. It's, I showed up. It's like, where the fuck has this kid been? And it's like, and then I ate your kid's lunch because you didn't allow me to play. And there are freaks that are out there. Like it just is like, and I was the small guy. Like I'm a little guy. At all my friends that I played with in Florida, I was a little guy at 6'5", 250 to 300 pounds. Like I was the small guy. And our team was little compared to LSU. Like LSU's average lineman was when we played them was like 6'8", like 350, 375 pounds. Like they had us by like four inches. They were monsters. That was the average. So it's like, and they don't even get us started with like Michigan. And like Ohio State, like it's a totally different game. SEC balls is a radically different game than we're playing out in like Big Ten or Big 12. And whatever the conferences are now. And um, so it just was, I was little and yet it just came in and was able to play. Again, it wasn't because I was the best athlete. It just was, I had a motor and I loved to to, to hit. And then, um, so that's how it got me into football. But again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't the best athlete, but I really enjoyed playing. And so again, my family put me in great positions where it was all right. His goal is to play pro. So we got to get to college. So for me, it just was, I stay eligible so that I can go and get into a good college. That's why I did homework and I did all those things because I wanted to play football. College was not of any desire or interest or anything. Football was the only reason I wanted to go to college was because I could continue to play football because you have to go to college in order to be able to go to the pros. So this is another stepping stone. And so um, during the summers, once I'm in high school, it's now going to more of those camps like I did at UCLA. And then you find out, oh, everybody's got these camps. So then I would go to USC's camp, even though I hated USC. We hated USC. Um, But we go to USC's camp and then um, my grandparents now have a spot out in Florida. So now we're going to go to Florida State's camp. And, um, you find out Georgia tech's got a camp. So we go to Georgia tech. So we, uh, when it was all said and done, I went to so many camps, UCLA, USC, Stanford, 
Georgia Tech, Georgia, Florida State, Florida, Miami, um, just all over hitting all these different camps. And it wasn't until like my junior year, you start getting tons of letters start coming in and people are interested and want you to come and, um, and just want you to know that you're being recruited. The best part is the first letters that come in are from um, all the Ivy League schools. So you get like tons of like it's Cornell and Brown and Harvard. <laughs> just You get these letters in and be like, oh, these are just auto sent. Because like I don't have even sort of the grades to go to any of these places. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm not going to Yale. So I'm not sure. Like it just was you learned very early on. It's like, oh, once a kid hits a certain age. And obviously has like maybe a certain height or weight. They're just sending you a letter or whatever it was. And um, I went to Stanford, one of the Stanford camps, and I got like best lineman in the camp. Like got the little plaque reward at the end of the camp. And that's when things started to be like, hey, like we think we're kind of good, but like, okay, this is cool. Like, and it isn't. And it was a big deal for me because my parent, my grandparents like weren't donors at Stanford. So it wasn't like there wasn't like some fuckery afoot. Like I got, I got a, an official visit to UCLA that I guarantee was just because grandpa said, can my grandson get an official visit? So there's a little bit of like animosity, not animosity, but just was, you didn't earn that piece. And so one of the years I went out to Florida and we went to, um, I was supposed to go to a Florida States camp, but it got canceled because of a hurricane coming or whatever. And they canceled it. But my grandmother was like, hey, there's a school between Orlando and Tallahassee. And, and they're holding a camp the same time period. Do you want to go? I say, sure. What is the school? So again, from being from California, there wasn't really a lot of differentiation between the state of Florida. It just was Florida has, is a state that has the universities. At this point, Florida State has been pretty good. So we know who they are. Miami had been good. But like Florida of the nineties, once you get to the two thousands, when I really become now like aware and have schools and teams on my radar, Florida in two thousands is, is garbage. Like they're not good. And so I, I'm complete, almost completely unaware of the university of Florida. And so that's when she's like, well, there's that school. So we're like, well then let's go, you know? And so we show up and as soon as I get to that campus, so I don't know anything about the swamp. I know nothing about anything. And I also wasn't a kid that like listened to like ESPN or watched ESPN to obsess over stats or obsess over like recruiting classes or whatever. Like I found it just being an enormous waste of time. Like I could not have less interest in it. So I was un unaware of like any of the hype, any, anything about Florida at all. And when I get there, as soon as I get out of the car, I immediately got a feeling of like, this is the place. I've been to a lot of campuses at this point. I've been to a lot of schools and done a lot of camps. Like I haven't even started the first day of camp and there was like a noticeable difference. As soon as I got out of the parking lot, I'm like, okay. So I'm just paying attention to that. Ends up being a, a Florida State's camp. Wasn't supposed to be a padded camp. Florida's camp did have pads, had helmets and shoulder pads and I didn't have them. And Florida was ultimately like, it's fine. You can do it. Just be careful in the drills. So I wasn't careful in the drills. And so I ended up headbutting another player that had a helmet on while we were in a drill and I crack my eye open and I'm bleeding all over and the coaches just fucking think it's awesome. And so I come over, they, you know, you want to keep, of course I want to keep going. So this is like for day, you know, day one or whatever. So they, you know, put a butterfly on it and get it taken care of. And then I play out the rest of the week, try not to headbutt anybody else. 
And then at the end, I got invited to go within just whoever the invites were to go now into the swamp and practice in front of Meyer with whoever the best people were in the camp. And from then on, the defensive line coach just stayed in contact with me like every week. I was like, we want you to come to Florida, keep your grades up. Like we want you to be here. And then when it pushed came to shove, they're like, we can't give you a scholarship. School's too small. I wasn't good enough. Like it just is, I, w- I wasn't there. He's like, but we can give you preferred walk-on status. So in football, right, you can have a true walk-on where you get, you're already at the school and you want to walk on to try and be on the football team. Preferred walk-on status is they helped you get into the school. And that was the only way I academically could have gotten in. So they helped me get in. And then that's ultimately what gets me into Florida was having that status. But that was, it was between UCLA or Florida. And not only did UCLA's football program look like they were going to be diarrhea, like they were not going to be good. And that ended up being true, but it was, I just wanted to make sure like it was mine. I did it and not having it tied to, oh, well, like your, you know, your grandparents were boosters and that's why you're there or whatever. And so it was a no brainer for me to go to Florida. Everybody thought I was an idiot. Like I was just the biggest idiot on the planet because nobody knew, again, nobody knows what Gainesville, Florida is. Like University of Florida was almost irrelevant. And they're like, wait, so you're going to Florida? Like why? Why there? You're going to walk on? Like you didn't get a scholarship? Like what are you thinking? And I went from the biggest idiot to like the smartest person on planet earth because less than like eight months later, we won our first national championship. So when I first moved from, I went, met my my ex in Japan, then we moved to England for six months and then we came, spent some time in Hawthorne before we went down to uh, Orlando to live, but her family in Hawthorne. So I was in Gainesville a lot and the entire freaking city is basically painted blue and orange. I mean, you sure talk about, you know, a uh, a city that's passionate about, you know, the school and obviously all the sports are predominantly football. Um, ironically, I ended up becoming a, a UF graduate myself years later. Um, but I lived in Anaheim, you know, I worked in Anaheim Fire and lived in Burbank and Huntington Beach for, for the years that I yeah. was there. Very different culture. So <laughs> <laughs> what was to say the what least. was your initial experience once you kind of, you know, laid your roots here as far as the differences in those cultures? The OC, so growing up in Orange County, you don't know it. You know it's a bubble. You know where you're at in Orange County is unique but when you grow up so the one thing that always was helpful is that i didn't i came into that area of orange county like newport beach laguna beach huntington beach that area i came to it in middle school so i had at least a little bit of perspective before getting there but this is a place that is i would never want to raise children there so culturally speaking it's 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 unfathomable amounts of money that's in this area. And it's, it's homes are bad, like not nice homes are a million plus. Right. And this was back then, like, we're, let's say, I don't even know what it would be now. Like this is back in like the two thousands, late nineties. And that's how expensive it was to be there. And so it just was, it's nothing but lawyers and doctors and dad's not around and mom's not around and knowing what I know now, right. It's like, it's everybody is, is taking pharmaceuticals. Like none of the parents are present. Um, The stories of growing up in high school, for me, my stories of high school parties and growing up in high school are how people describe college. 
So regular humans describe college of like drinking and partying and drugs and this, that, or the other. Like that was my high school experience. Like I had so many friends that either got kicked out for smoking pot at school when I was in middle school and like pot wasn't like weed wasn't even considered a, a drug within our population of, of students. It was only like, if you did drugs, it was cause you were doing like Coke or you were doing mushrooms or you were doing things like that. Like it was, it was so much different and alcohol wasn't even like, what are we talking about? Like everyone drinks alcohol. And for me, I was raised Mormon. So I was an LDS kid. So the best part was, is I was always the DD. So being the DD was, I, but I had tons of friends. So I loved going to parties and it was an easy sell of my parents where it was just like, Sean and Matt won't make it home. So it's like, I have to be there. So Sean and Matt can get home. And the experience for me, like one of the, it was one of the, like, here's, I guess this is like a story to really say what it was like growing up there it was like, there was a, a house party we were at. There's a kid who went to my high school, but I didn't know him. And he was in his Escalade because of course, right? Because at 16, 17, that's what you have. He's in his Escalade. His lights were on, the engine's running, and he's passed out with his head on the steering wheel. And so I'm out because I buy the car because I was also like, I was lookout for cops. Cops come. My job is get in, get Matt and Sean. We're going to get the hell out of there because we're not getting arrested and I'm going to get them home safe period. So I was always looking for cops and, but I see this kid and he's passed out. And so like, I, this appears to be like the car's on like in drive. So I walk up, knock on this window or whatever. It doesn't respond. So I open up his door and sure shit, his foot's on the brake with the car in drive. Like it just passed out right at the last second. So we put it in the park or whatever. I don't know who this kid is. So I pull him out, trying to talk to him. He's like, um, he's so drunk, right? He's so far gone that like his eyes are um, going opposite directions, right? And are all glassed over like uh, what are chameleons, right? Whatever the lizards are. And so he can't, he's not, he's not all there. So all I do is I pop him onto my shoulder, walk in to the party and go, who's this kid? And they let me know who he is and um, get his phone. I just tell Matt and Sean, you got to find a way home because homie here has got a problem. Like, I don't know it, right. But he's for sure. Like it's, it's, it's alcohol poisoning at this point for sure. So get him in my truck, get a hold of his phone, figure out where, he, you know, he's staying or whatever. He's got some nanny or whatever. That's home. The, his parents are out of the country. Cause of course they are like whatever. And, um, get him home, pull him up, he's pissed himself. So he's pissed down like my shirt as I've carried him home. And bring him in. So the nanny's there. She's like, oh, you know, thank you so much for bringing him home. Like, that's it. That was the night, you know, and I go home. That next Monday, that kid finds me. He goes, dude, thank you so much for taking me home. He's like, my, the nanny rushed me to the hospital and they pumped my stomach. Because like, and they're like, if you didn't get here, you're going to die. That was a normal Saturday. That's a Saturday where I grew up because it's, it's too much money. It's too much time. No parents, no family, like no accountability. So many kids that I went to school with have gone through rehab before we hit 30. And, and then we go to Florida and each grew up, this is the 405. This is the five, the 55. Like these are areas where it's like, it's you're driving 80 miles an hour on 65 highways. Everyone's got beamers. Like I had a, 
a Harley Davidson truck that was like the Ford Harley Davidson truck that had a supercharger in it at 16. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it just was like the normal, you're normal at this place of kids having Porsches and all these, it was, that was normal. It was just, it was like, well, yeah, you have the teacher lot and you have the student lot and the student lot doesn't have a vehicle under $70,000 in it. And that was our normal. We played against the kid that was like on the, one of the first seasons of Laguna beach or whatever. Like, and he was such a tool. So we were super stoked because we broke his ankle in the game that we played him against. He was such a douche. Like it just was, it was, that was, yeah. So that was what it was like growing up there. And then you get to Florida. And again, you think, you know, football, like I like football. I've been to UCLA tons of times. Like they're super passionate about football, the big games, the Rose Bowl, Pasadena, the whole thing. Like you have no idea. Like it's, it's so hard. It is impossible for you to comprehend and understand what football means in the South. And so when you get there, it is, oh, it's un, like, I already knew it was hot. Like we've been to Florida in the summers and stuff, but like, it's ungodly hot. And I think just because of the heat and the humidity, everyone slows down 25 miles an hour. Like it just, it's, it is slow. You're in, it's, it's swampy or whatever. But at this point, like you don't care. Like you are just, you are so in it. But like you said, it's, the gas stations and the car washes and everything is orange and blue. Every like, it's like it, this, this area of the world does not exist without football. Like this, the city probably of Gainesville probably goes to what? 30,000 people when school's not in. And then it's at over a hundred thousand people when school is in session or whatever. Like it's the swells and ebbs and flows are just a whole nother animal. Um, that's why I never went back to California. It just was not only was it just outrageously and prohibitively expensive to, to be there, but it just was like, I just couldn't see myself going back. And I have tons of and I have friends that are there and guys that I that I truly love that are still there and, and never really left or, or went to Colorado or or went um, you know, to different areas, then went back and they still live there or whatever. But I don't know if I ever could once I got a taste of not there. Starting off living in Burbank and where I live was literally when you watch a movie and some poor, for example, wannabe actor moves to LA and they live in an absolute shithole under an airport. That's where I lived <laughs> with my wife at the time. <laughs> there you go. Right yeah. under the fucking, I mean, the, you know, the wheels of the planes almost hit us before they went onto Burbank <laughs> airport. Um, yeah, that was Santa Ana where we were. Right, that was like yeah, that the, area the, of what used to be John Wayne Airport. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then I go down to Huntington Beach, and again, the house is very basic. And you talk about the cost; it was a, I think it was a fourteen hundred square foot house, nineteen fifties, and it was basically a million dollar house. We rented, yeah. but I've seen it for sale now, and it's, it's over a million, which is insane. But you got to see the contrast. L.A., you know, if you if you want to paint it politically, L.A. seems to be a little bit more blue. You go through the orange curtain going south <laughs> and all of a sudden yeah. it's like you're in Florida. <laughs> it's a very, very different. For sure. Politically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you have that, Absolutely. you know, you and I remember just being like, what in the fuck? I'd have my friends yapping about, <laughs> you know, illegal immigrants and here and then in the same breath saying they were going to go to Home Depot and pick up some Mexicans so they can help, you know, whatever totally. thing in their house. I'm like, do you know how fucking hypocritical you are right now? But oh, yeah. it was... It was interesting because Anaheim itself, you've got Disneyland, you know, we've got some very, very poor areas in Anaheim, you know, uh, in relation Definitely. to the, the areas around us, some very dangerous areas, really bad gang activity. 
Um, but you know, Huntington and, and Newport and all those other areas, like you said, this this kind of um, projection of wealth, the same way you'd see driving down Ocean Drive in Miami, which by the way, most of those are rented. So that uh, isn't actually rent. People like pretend to be wealthy for a day a lot of times. But when I looked at the firefighters, like I got made fun of because I had a 1997 Nissan Sentra that when I traded in had 309,000 miles awesome. on the clock, but they they all called it my cream puff because they all had the, <laughs> the big trucks. And, you know, this was, I was mm-hmm. there before the crash. So they had ski boats and Winnebago's and jet skis and you name it. But when you just said that now, I've never thought about this before. I found that so fucking alien because to me, an, an immigrant from the UK, the American dream was the American dream. A little bit of land, a home, you know, some places to you know, grow vegetables and have some, you know, maybe some chickens and enough space for your kids and dogs to run around. But that wasn't be. the American dream I walked into. It was no. you need, you know, all these fucking toys and a 4,000 square foot home. And, and these guys were killing themselves trying to chase this. And after I left is when the crash happened. I heard about all the repossessions and all the bankruptcies. But, you know, you've got these firefighters living in a place with doctors and lawyers that are actually making crazy money. And this element of keeping up with the Joneses was even bleeding into the first responders who felt like, clearly felt like they needed to match it with their, you know, projection of of their lifestyle. But you're right, it was an absolute bubble because the rest of the U.S., I mean, again, not Manhattan or some of these other pockets, Beverly Hills, but the rest of the U.S., they, they weren't subject to this constant pull that you need more. That's not good mm-hmm. enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a, a really unique place to be and grow up um, in Ocean's 11. Ocean's Eleven, right, with uh, George Clooney and right and Brad Pitt and all the guys, right, the, the robbers. So at the very end of the movie, the dude, I can't remember that. He's awesome, right? He's an Italian cat, and he's making a threat, right, to George Clooney. And he's like, you know, no matter where you are, I'm going to find you. If you're driving your Lamborghini in Newport Beach, California, and he says that phrase, and the whole fucking theater just erupts. Because it's like, that's it's it just it's so unself-aware. And I think that that's probably the best way really also to describe that area is just it's just mind numbingly unself-aware of like what it is. Just like you said, of the idea of like political leanings, just hard, hard right, right, has always been and yet is picking up illegals from Home Depot or is, is you know, it's like it's, oh, you just have no idea. So that's was coming into Florida, the culture shock. Two, which was a big part of like playing ball is that we didn't have like it's there was one kid that was african-american and his mom was british and his dad was african-american and so he was mixed that was the only kid that we have that wasn't like what white like on the team and then we come to florida and when i came in as a defensive lineman i was the only white player on the entire defensive side of the ball and there was a number of dudes that I played with that had never played with a white player ever until they got to college. So it was a massive, a massive culture shock as far as just, oh, understanding kind of like where you fit and then fitting in. But it never was a situation where I wasn't embraced and loved. You know what I mean? Like even as a walk-on, um, 
I had guys because you all live when you're a freshman, you live all in the same dorms. You live in Springs is the name of the dorms that are there in Gainesville. And that's where all the athletes live. So you get paired up with roommates and you're hanging out. And, you know, when you're with that, that your, your incoming class, you do a lot of things with that class, especially just as like workouts and practices. So you just get to know guys. And the guy that I ended up busting my eye open at the camp, he ultimately gets a scholarship as a defensive lineman. So I'm like, Oh, I know a guy. So then like we're, so the, he and I became good friends and went back to his home and, um, and spent time with his family. But this is, you know, again, it's now in areas that are not so nice. And so this is, again, is, is getting introduced to, you know, my parents are like, you can't have, you can't have your friends smoke black and milds in the truck. I'm like, I know, but I didn't know what to do. Like he just started smoking. Like, I didn't know what to say. Like, it just was like, there's so many lessons, like little lessons like that, where it's like, okay. And so it's like a T if you don't mind, like, can we wait till we like get wherever we need to go before you smoke black, like black, like it just was these little things as you start to, you know, get introduced to new cultures and new areas. Having experienced Orange County, I mean, obviously there's, there's more of a Hispanic leaning and an Asian leaning, you know, Westminster, for example, was very uh, Vietnamese and that was right on the edge of Huntington. But yeah. when you talk about diversity, it just it just depends where you stand. Like where I grew up in For England, sure. it wasn't extremely diverse. I mean, I remember, you know, the, the the handful of people in my school that weren't Caucasian, but that was just because that was that area. But I also remember as a young boy absolutely loving Heathrow Airport because that's really reflected Britain, you know, the UK, because there was Everyone was there, African nations, you know, Asian nations, you name it, they, and they were all British. You know, it's fi- I love the fact when I see someone, you know, that's from wherever in their lineage, but they got a thick Glaswegian, Glaswegian accent or London accent, a Cockney or whatever, because this is England. This is the UK to me. We are a diverse culture. And you can stand in Newport Beach, maybe, and, and think, wow, we're a very Caucasian country, but you can stand in Manhattan and realize what mm-hmm. a beautiful melting pot America actually is. So people can get a very skewed perspective, especially when it comes to racism. Oh, you know, Anaheim's a perfect example. So the hiring to be a firefighter in Anaheim, I've tested against a thousand certified firefighter EMTs or paramedics, a thousand of us in, I think it was the um, the convention center in Anaheim, if I remember rightly. And I remember looking and going, wow, that is a sea of white faces. So if you look at Anaheim's diversity, some people could say, why aren't you hiring more whatever? And I remember thinking, well, you've got to show up to be part of that thing. Now, again, mentorship and, and removing barriers to entry is definitely part of this conversation. But as you saw, you know, if you stand in Gainesville, Florida, a lot more diverse. You stand in, and I'm just guessing here, the Midwest, Iowa somewhere, maybe it's not as diverse because that's the the geography of that particular area. But when people project America is a racist country, there are some shitbags in this country. We know all the way from homeless through to in the White House the last six years and everywhere in between. Sure. But most of us are a beautifully diverse community. And and seeing the similarities and watching, I'll say in the documentary, watching that passion when you guys won against a common enemy, it was a diverse football team unified by a single purpose. And that to me was such a great metaphor is what is needed now more than ever. 
not to unify to go kill another country, but to come together and elevate our own country. And the universities, I think they've gotten a bad rap, rightfully so, over the last several years. You know, I left university in 2010. And but one of the incredibly positive pieces that I think university holds is that it does bring people from all over the world to those to those walls. So you just now now you are you're with it's Heathrow Airport, right? Like you are now in a massive melting pot of humans everywhere. And so it was being able to be exposed. And I I dragged my wife because I really dug like. Old Testament um, studies and research, all this time, all this stuff. When I was in college, like it's, I dragged my wife to like the 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 Jewish, the Jewish club thing that they do, like where they'll teach you stuff out of the out of the Talmud. Like you're going in and you're learning right from the Jewish center or whatever. And we were going just because it's like, why are we doing this? It's like because it's here. Like I've never like it's we can dive into some of these things and dive into so many different elements. You can just be immersed. Um, what the at the the library um grounds at, at Gainesville has the um the Hare Krishnas that are always there. So the Hare Krishnas are always there and they're serving food. So it's just like I'm getting a punch fast. I'm eating food. Like this food is tastes nothing like anything I've ever eaten before. And it's just is like so you just get introduced to so many different things that again, being from whitewashed Orange County, it was and and being with people that are they're all doing the same thing. And so that was what was also unique of being at UF where it was as a football player. You just have this common connection with every single person that you are interacting with. So whether they're PhD students, master's students, regular students that are in your classes, you're a football player. So you now immediately hold status. So it was a very interesting relationship with the student body and we won. So it wasn't elements where like Meyer tells the stories of like being booed in 05 when he first gets there and they're not doing very well. And he gets booed when he walks into a place like, no, like I'm, I'm in the Arby's drive through and you're on a scooter and they're like, you football player. It's like, yes. It's like, will you sign this? Like you're just signing autographs because you're picking up food at the Arby's. Like it just was immediately, that was the level. So it just was really, really awesome to be able to be part of that and be successful and then also have that coincide with everybody from all over the world that you're interacting with. So there's someone right now listening, probably it's got a framed meat sandwich with your signature on it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, we were talking before we hit record. Um, I worked on summer camps for six years up in upstate New York, and uh, I think it was like the fourth year I was there. Um, I had a roommate, a fellow counselor in my room, um, and we normally looked after the youngest kids, and his name was Ty. And I, I literally, it was a different spelling, but I named my son after him. And sadly, I found out years later that he passed away, and I still don't know why we lost him. Um, Tyrese Hopkins is his full name. But he had worked in inner city summer camps. I'd spent a few years now on this one, and this was a very wealthy Jewish summer camps. It's funny you talked about the Jewish studies. I learned a lot from just being a counselor there. But some very, very big names, kids were there. Everyone from Frank Oz, who was behind all the Star Wars. Cody was was uh, was with me in my bunk. But Ty and I would talk and he'd be like, look, there's a lot of similarities. And I would see it between the inner city 
struggling kids that he worked with before and these very, very wealthy kids. And I would see the mental health struggles, the loneliness, the lack of parent interaction, even though these people's bank accounts have more zeros than I'm ever going to see in my entire life. So you talked about, I mean, obviously you went on to do um, education as well, and we'll get into that. But you come from this hyper affluent part of California. Now you come to Gainesville, which I mean, I don't know if people are aware, we got some very, very poor areas of Gainesville. And for example, uh, let me see, uh, Brandon Seiler comes from Pine Hills, which I used to work and protect as a firefighter in Orlando, very violent, poor area of Orlando. So now you're side by side with a lot of these these people that are from um, very poor, somewhat dangerous areas. Talk to me about your realization of the commonalities, regardless of the socioeconomic status of maybe a fractured family dynamic that contributes to the same issue, whether someone's very wealthy or very poor. Well, definitely when I was playing, I didn't have enough perspective because the only people that I knew that were not from where I was from, you had the most extreme examples of guys that I played with. You're talking about like, it's, we would do these sessions where um, we called it like your, uh, like the bleed on you sessions. And these were sessions that we would do oftentimes during two days. It was some like to bring the team together and players would share just, you understand like where they're from, like what their upbringing was. And there was just story after story after story of guys that had guns pulled on them, that they, they were running streets and they had guns on them, or they had siblings that, you know, murdered people and went to jail for life. Or the, you know, I remember one of the stories was, you know, the kid is not where he's supposed to be. And then a gun is like put in his mouth. Like, it's just, it's like such intense violence. Chris Rainey, right. He's born in prison. Like mom, mom, has him while she's in prison. Sharif Floyd, which doesn't get taught. He's a player that later on in my career, um, he, he was homeless. Sharif had no family and they recruited him to come to Florida. I think, and he goes on to the NFL. Like he did, he was a super nice guy and was incredibly strong. was an amazing athlete. And like, he goes on to play, but it's like, there's so many just, just devastating stories. Um, and, so I didn't have the perspective when I was playing of like whoa, all the pieces either that were missing or similarities that existed. And it wasn't until I started getting into teaching. So now, so when I, when I played ball, I got my degree and, as a walk-on and then I earned my scholarship. So I earned a scholarship and football paid for my master's program. So I got a master's in teaching my last year playing football in 2010. And part of that master's was that I did practicum teaching. So I taught in at the east side of Gainesville. And as I was learning, so you get a really cool opportunity as a football player because you're given status and you could do what you want with that, right? You can get free drinks and tattoos or whatever it is that you're going to do, but you also could go and do a lot of good as well. And so I had a great college counselor um, named Caleb. And Caleb desperately wanted me to not be a shitbag. And so he would bother me all, all the time. He'd bother me all the time about come do there's community service over here. There's community service over there. You, you should, you should do this. You should do that. And it was so annoying, but him constantly asking got me to go do it. And so then you start doing it. So then you go to the, 
the burn wing or you go to the cancer wing of the hospital and you wear your jersey and you interact with kids or you interact and then you start to fall in love doing those things because there's there's got to be an element too of being like a paramedic or a firefighter where like it's kids my boys were so excited to go to your firehouse like they're so pumped like there's very few things for little boys i think they get more exciting than like a fire truck and you get that as a football player is you're the football player and at gainesville again it's you hold it's not like other places like his football players were gods. And so you got that. And again, it wasn't that you were elevated in your status where you felt better about yourself, but the amount of joy that it brought them was so disproportionate to what it meant to you that that's where I started to realize. And so we had a friend whose girlfriend was a teacher on the East side for on the elementary level. And I would pop, she's like, would, would you guys come over and like read to the kids and hang out to, with the kids? And I started doing that like all the time. And I loved coming over and doing that. And so as I had to figure out what my master's degree was going to be in, it was going to be like, you get a master's degree in entrepreneurship. And then I saw education and I'm like, yeah, that would be cool. Like, I want to do that. That sounds like something I could, I could get behind. And so once I started interacting with this population on the East side, where it was, they're stealing, like taking ketchup packets home, right? So that they could eat over the weekend they don't get the food and they're going to make soup right out of the ketchup packets and mom and dad aren't there and they're not there and it's like there's no one there like the kids just go home and they would stress her out because she would tell the stories where it's like i always worry every friday like do i get him back on monday do they come back and so there's just there was so much of that and realizing just how good these little and and for me it was always like we have to say like it's i know what these kids are going to turn into and these are the best ones that played football, they could run fast and they could jump high and they were freak athletes and they could get out. But there's 1% of the 1%. And it's like, if you're going to save these babies, you're going to save these guys. We're like, these dudes don't have to have these stories and they have them. And then I'm interacting with those babies. Now these kids that are five, six, seven years old. And it's like, how can you help them? Where do you see, you know, where their life will go? I'm hearing horrible stories of what it could be. And it's like, how do you save that? How do you, inter- how do you intervene? And that's what really got like, it's, there was a group of us that were this, like we had the paperwork filled out and sent to Tallahassee to start a charter school in Gainesville. I just was in the right circles at the right time. And I was earning my master's degree and everybody else in the room were PhD students, linguistics and biology and just evolution area, biology and education, like all these people that were like, we want to make a difference. Like we want to be able to start a charter school. We want to do these things. And then, oh, oh, nine happened. Right. And then the bottom falls out and then there's nothing for education. So then that idea dies on the vine and we don't end up being able to do it. But then that really scratches that itch of like wanting to be able to do better. So as I'm interacting and seeing those similarities, it isn't, I don't see the similarities. Again, I'm a kid. So when I grew up in Orange County, that was my lived experience. My friends, like you don't have hindsight of being like, so why does Willie drink a fifth of Jack? Like, why is that something that everybody gets excited about? Like, that's not the question you're asking. It just is, Willie can drink a fifth of Jack like all at once. That's weird. Like, that's that's crazy. Like, it's not even like, there's no deeper 
at least for me, there was no deeper thoughts. It just was like, it's really impressive because like I can't drink that at, at all at this point. Like that sounds terrible. And then when you give distance, give a decade, you're like, oh, I know why. <laughs> I have an idea of why Willie really was drinking a fifth of Jack. And then now you see, so then when I get to the military school, so when I end up graduating, I, I apply to every single county in the entire state of Florida. I graduate with my master's degree. It's 2010, season's over. I'm done. I have my master's. I have everything. I'm, and I apply to every single county in the state of Florida to be able to get a job to teach. And because of the economic downturn, they froze all new teacher hires in the entire state of Florida. And it was like, nobody could get a job. You could not get a job. So I was moving co-eds. I was working for a car detailer and I was moving co-eds for a moving company in Gainesville with my master's degree. And that's what I was doing for work. And then it was just like, uh, luckily I had a friend whose dad had worked in military schools. He's like, well, put, put your resume out. Like there's a couple of headhunters to put them out um, and see if they can help you in military schools. I can tell you right now, public universities that are trying to help get you master's degree in education. They're not teaching you nothing about the military schools that are out there or private schools. You're getting pumped to go back into the public system. So I was completely oblivious to any of that world. And sure enough, a random Tuesday, I get a phone call. Hi, so, so this is Colonel Cedar and we're at Fishburne Military School and like, no, if you'd like a job. I hadn't even gotten an interview yet. Like I hadn't been called to even do one interview in the entire state. I had, I had already been coaching at Buholtz High School in, in Gainesville. I had already been coaching all spring, hoping to have a job come the summertime to be able to be teaching and coaching for that coach. And then we get to whatever, June, July, spring season gets over. And he's like, oh, like they won't let me hire you. I'm like, what? what? That was the whole point of me being here. It was like, the, it's like, no, like it's hiring freezes. It's whatever. And so it's now August and I finally get a phone call. And it was like, do you want a job? I was like, my wife sitting, she's dental hygienist. She's working. We now have a baby, right? Like it's when I, in 2009 is when I was a senior, like a red shirt junior or whatever. And my wife and I are like, you're done. It was great. You got your degree. I have a job to go sell insurance in Ocala because that's everybody's dream when they get their bachelor's degree in history and a minor in communications, because that's what you're going to do with it. You're going to go sell insurance. And I was stoked, had money, whatever law lined up. And we're like, we want to be able to have a baby. So I want to be able to have a baby. Great. Let's do it. Plan it out. We'll have the baby. So we now have baby coming. And luckily, unluckily, however you want to look at it, it was in 2000, that once 2009 season is over, that off season, the long snapper just wasn't up to snuff. Because that's what I did. I long snapped and I was on kickoff return. Those are the things I did. He wasn't up to snuff. And it was driving the punter who was the holder and the kicker crazy. They're like, we need this dude back. He has eligibility. So Meyer calls me back, calls me. All spring goes by. Spring game doesn't go well for the, the new long snapper or whatever. And so he calls me and goes, um, Chaz and Caleb will not shut up. And you have to come back. I'm like, well, that sounds great. I said, I don't have any money. So I can't come back. Like I'm a walk-on. Like I've already had my student loans because that was the that was the play. Because that was really smart. That was the advice I got was to go through Wachovia, which ends up becoming Wells Fargo. And it's like to get all my student loans because I don't have money to play. And that was what my parents were told who never went to college. So that was student loans. So I went through a private bank, not even through like government student loans. Massive. Like, I got no rate. advice. 
I haven't looked at it. <laughs> I haven't looked at it in years. But it's just pay, paying whatever the minimum payment is forever. And it just is. And um, I'm like, I can't come back to play. And he's like, so I just told him, like, sorry, coach, but like, no. He's like, what if we, so he calls me back a week later. What if we paid half? I'm like, then I'm half no. Because the other half would be yes, but now I'm half no. I'm not a math major, but. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can tell you, like, it's, when I say I don't have money, this isn't me, like, I'm not trying to, like, lowball you and get you, like, it's, I don't have money to do this. And so then a week later or whatever, he calls and says, if you get, if you get into your master's program, we'll pay for it. So it's like, okay, off, off we go. So, but now I have a baby coming. So then it was like, my wife and I had to talk and be like, if I go back, I won't have the job. I won't be, you know, just making buckets of money, selling insurance in Ocala. And I'm like, but we're going to be like poor. Like we're going to be hilariously like on full assistance poor. And it kind of was like, everybody got together, the family and we're like, no, like it's a limited amount of time. We know what the point is. We know what the deal is. Like it's go, go get your master's degree. And so that's what we did. So when we go back to play, my, my son is born in the middle of two days going into 2010. So at that point, it's like, once my wife has the baby, she's now the full breadwinner and we now have the baby and we're now, I'm getting my master's degree, playing football and have, and I'm a new dad while we're doing that last year in 2010. And it was like, I would show up to practice uh, for, for field goals. Field goal and PAT was my bread and butter. Um, and that's all I ended up doing my last year. Like in 2009, I was the middle wedge for kickoff return when middle wedge was still allowed. And, and then also long snap. And so because I only long snapped my senior year, because that was the deal that I made, I would come and I would snap for the first 15 minutes of practice in live situation. And then I would leave, <laughs> run off the field and I would go to class because I was already 20 minutes late to class for my master's degree. And then that was it. So I would literally just be at practice for an hour total for like the whole week. And then I would travel with the team. My, my wife and her and our baby would come to practice on Sunday nights after the games were over and it was the next practice the next night and be there. Like it was, it, it I had kind of earned my way to get to that point. But once we had that master's degree and now I'm teaching, it was being able to go and finally get the gig to teach and got the nod of being like, Okay, like, do you want the job? And I remember we were just sitting on a Tuesday. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I said it's it's a job. She goes, great. I said, well, the, we'll we'll be there today. He goes, well, we're in Virginia. And so I just muted the phone. I said, they're in Virginia. She goes, okay, great. And so we then dropped the baby off with my parents, and then we drove through the night and showed up from Gainesville into the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, you know, at 2 a.m. or whatever. And then slept for a few hours at the hotel and then went and interviewed and got the most amount of money I had ever seen in my entire life on a contract for $32,000. And I was just over the moon because we got our degree, getting a job teaching. And then I just, then that's what started me over at, at the, the military school. And that is when I realized working with those boys where it costs $30,000 a year for them to go to be at this military school, it was, oh, these kids, which it was, it was primarily Caucasian families that could flip the bill. We would have, we, we, we probably had maybe 20% of our population was non-Caucasian uh, and a mix of their end, but it was, oh, these kids are, they're identical 
it's identical to the same at-risk youth that we wanted to start a charter school to save in Gainesville, Florida. The kids here are identical. And this was from all over the country, right? This was, these were kids that were got in trouble, you know, smoking pot, running with the wrong crowds at home. And mom and dad just have enough money to send them off. There just is where those kids on the East side and those kids that are in at-risk areas have moms and dads that either aren't there because they're working or aren't there because they're in prison or aren't there because they bailed and grandma's raising them to where these kids now at the military schools just have parents that just sent them away, you know, got rid of them for a very particular reason. And you always knew, like it just, when you, when you had like parent teacher conferences and you sat down with families, you're like, um, I get it. I get it now. And that's where like, it's uh, the brand we mentioned Brandon Seiler. So in the Swamp Kings documentary, they talk about in that first episode where he's trying to help Brandon. He's just like, oh, Brandon's is, is she struggling? You know, Brandon, Brandon says like, it's, I like to do everything as, as excessive as possible. And I like to drink or whatever. And Meyer's like, you know, I'm calling your parents and the parents come and then he sits with the parents and the parents have been drinking all day and essentially just tell them to fly a kite. Like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, coach, like get bent. And then when they walk out, he just hugs Brandon and just be like, those were, just keep doing what you're doing. Cause those are the craziest parents that I've ever witnessed. And Brandon dies. Right. But it's like, that's so real. Like that's so, so real. Like it just, when those parents would come to for the military school and they would come in and they would interact with you, you'd be like, Oh, thank God your son got away. Like, thank God he's here. Cause then at least we can, we can help him and we can say, cause he's like, there was 0% chance. Like he, the way he is, the way he is because of who you are, because of who you guys are. So we just got to keep him away from you. Like at all, at all costs. But it is, it was just, I never, I never would have ever made that connection, right? Linearly, where it's either you have or have not to where it's so much more cyclical, the same way that the, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders voters can jump over to vote for Trump. It's cyclical. Like it's, they're just, they're not making a linear jump. They're not jumping this massive. It's like, no, they're just literally going one, one degree over because they're all, they're right there. And they're so, so similar. Yeah. No, it's it's amazing. I mean, you see again, great parents, some of them for the kids in this summer camp, and they were usually the the most grounded kids. But you know, if as I said with my previous guest, if dad is always away or mom is always away, whether you know they're they're at work, they're traveling for work, whatever it is, regardless of again what you get paid, or you've got this multi generational trauma through addiction and violence, where now mom or dad or both overdose and died or in prison or you know are addicts so they're physically there but they're not mentally there i mean these are the same problems that we see across all races across all socioeconomic you know paths and i've had you know i interviewed the the give team in orlando in paramore which is oh, yeah. which is again another very 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 um kind of densely populated poor dangerous area in um in orlando predominantly Haitian background, but these kids that have found this mentorship program, the uh, the New, New Image Youth Center, um, when I'm sitting down and talking, and I'm kind of waiting for this kind of fractured family backstory, it was the opposite. There were some great, great parents behind these kids, which is probably why they found themselves leaning into this youth center and have, have now, like one of them's in college now with a, I mean, a ridiculous GPA and he's just had to fight because the, the red tape of the finances, you know, if we're referencing how expensive college is these days, almost got him 
removed, even though he's flourishing there just because of, mm -hmm. you know, of politics, basically. But this is it, is it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. If you are fortunate enough to have good parents, you know, you're, you're going to be okay. And if you don't have good parents, but you're fortunate enough to find a mentor that turns a corner for you, you're going to be okay. And the answer to this issue is not to look down your nose and say, well, the problem is these, you know, these broken homes. Well, yeah, but you, that's not something that you can unfuck. What you have to do is be part of the solution and be like, okay, if there are broken homes, regardless of, again, wealth, be part of the solution. Fix your own home if you have the ability to, and then walk outside your front door and be a mentor in your community because That's that it. is how we change the world. Yeah, 100%. We have way too much attention outside of our hyper, hyper local communities. Hyper localism is how we get out of this. And this isn't a populist thing, right? It's, 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 it's beyond populism. It's we're going to drill three layers deep into populism. Is that it's like, no, 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 this is hyper-localism that if we can come in and just take care of it, because that's where we all look left to right. And there was like, whatever the diversity is, whatever the the drama is, it's, you don't see that on your hyper-local level. Your br brothers and sisters in your community all are the same. We're all here. And so it's, it's a totally different angle. You just have to shut off those voices. Meyer used to call it poison. He goes, uh, the better you guys do, the more the poison is going to try and seep in. He goes, keep it out. Keep the poison out. He goes, you're going to have uncles. He's talking about all the time. You're going to have uncles that are going to tell you that you should be plant, you should be starting, or you should be doing this, or we should be doing that. And he goes, and I want you to know it's poison. It's poison coming in. You got to keep it, keep it out, cut it out. And it, and it was just like, it was very much just us versus the world mentality because as shocking as it seems, Meyer was getting calls from aunts and uncles and uh, what is it, the phrase, right? The, uh, armchair warriors, armchair quarterbacks, right? They were calling. Why isn't my kid playing? Why are they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? And eventually he's just like, I remember one time he, he had us in a huddle and he, so he goes, if I get another call, if I get another call from one of your guys' aunts or uncles that wants to know why you're not playing, he goes, I'm going to invite them to come to practice and I'm going to let them see why you're not playing. He's like, so be very clear, whatever you're being told at home, it's practice tape doesn't lie. Cause you know how it is. You go home, you don't want to say face. You're like, Oh, you know, the coaches are fucking me or whatever it is. And it just is like, no, 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 we'll, we'll show you exactly what the issue is. And so that poison seeps in from everywhere. And, that, and that's how I would view it. It's just, it's poison that keeps us from staying together. Well, as you mentioned, the documentary Swamp Kings just came out on Netflix and I binge watched that the other day. Um, and you see, and as, as you talked about, the timeline may not have been exactly how it was portrayed to us, but you see a, a team that is struggling and then he comes in and one of the the obvious tools that he used is shared suffering to get people to start mm -hmm. coming together. Now, you came in, obviously, kind of at the beginning of that crest. So walk me through that. You're this young high school football player. You've done all these camps. You realize that you are good. You are a lunatic because you enjoy getting hit. Um, what, From the athlete's point of view, walk me through that journey and, and what you walked into and how you 
either thrived or struggled in that environment? Well, so when when I first get there, it's you already have a group of guys that have struggled. They've already suffered a little bit together as a group. So, and they document this in episode one of the Swamp Kings, where it's, you know, in 05, that's the true culture shock for those dudes that are there. Like they were, the, the coach that was there at Florida before Meyer got there was like a player's coach. You know, one of the guys, super relaxed, whatever. And Meyer was so not that, right? They just referred to him as the dictator. And that transition. So when I come in 06, I don't know the amount of suffering that these guys have endured. So I get there June of 06. So in California, um, high school graduation is at like the end of June. And so I graduate and then I take six days or whatever. And then I go immediately out to Florida for like the summer AB session to start summer school. Cause it was like, I got to get out there as soon as I can to start like practicing. And when I get out in June, um, you can't practice with the team yet. Like there's no team activities. Like you're not part of the team, but you're there. The team has helped you get into school. So you are going to start taking classes and take, you know, whatever, one or two classes during the summer, which I, I highly recommend. Right. It's like back then it was, it was, it didn't make a lot of sense. No one understood like, wait, why are you going to summer school? Cause like summer school and high school is like, if you've not done well to where it's like the ability to get acclimated and to slowly get introduced to like a college environment when no one is on campus was really ideal as like a young guy, but we had to start like, so we just knew we were going to go into college football, like buzzsaw, whatever we could imagine. So there was a group of us that ended up finding each other at like the local gyms that were done by the school that was like, Hey, are you, are you a walk? Like, are you playing football? Like, why are you here? There's only so many people on campus. So you end up finding other walk-ons that were there that were trying to train and prep to show up for fall camp to go into two a days. So you really don't get to do, we didn't get to do a lot. So we ended up finding each other and like working out together. And that's when I'm, I end up meeting and making friends with the other guys that I end up walking on and staying with for like the rest of the time that we were there at Florida. So you end up starting kind of making those friendships as walk-ons. And then we finally get to fall camp and it's, it's hard to describe. You're not ready. And there was no way to get ready for two a days in Gainesville because it's so it, it, people love Florida. They want to move to Florida. They think Florida is beautiful and is amazing or whatever. But it's like you need to be in Florida on August 15th to fully appreciate what Florida is and what she has to provide to you. And not on the coast. You need to be in the armpit of the state where Gainesville, Florida is located. Someone I saw recently, it was uh, my coach posted it, the, the owner of my gym, Ted. Um, someone described Florida as living inside someone's mouth for three months. And we're like, that's it. You nailed it. <laughs> that's, that's it. After they've drank a warm cup of coffee. Like it was, it's, it is, it's a blanket. And the best way that I've always described, because I was born and spent time in the Mojave, like in the Mojave Desert out in California. Right. So it, we get 120 degrees, 125 degrees. You had to have shield covers over your windows or your dashboards would melt. 
right? In like the the 90s stuff. Like, so I know what I knew what heat was, but it's it's the difference of like being where you get burned, where you have like a sunburn is in the West and in the East in Florida, down into the swamp areas, it's now you're cooking from the inside out. And so when you were there, like there's no preparation for that. So that was very overwhelming of like over a hundred degrees heat index, maximum humidity. You knew it was going to rain between your first practice and your second practice. And the humidity was going to be raised to levels of like rainforest, like, and then you were going to go out and play and you're going to practice. And so it just was, it was established. So we thought that was hard, right? So going into 06, you're, you're, you're cannon fodder. It truly is a buzzsaw as walk on and size where you're just going to be, um, where you're just going to be going. And, and it just was, you couldn't, if you had the mentality of why am I doing this? Like, what, why am I doing this? Like, what is this for? Like, why is the coach making me do this? If you have that mentality, um, you weren't going to make it. It would have been impossible. It just had to have been unapologetically just going for it and just doing whatever the coaches said. Whatever they said, you just do it. And you just know, have faith that you're going to make it through. We win in 06. So when we win, we win the national championship in 06 and we play Ohio State. And we win that game. And that's when we lose, right, the leaders. And the problem was a bunch of the young guys that really came in that were really stellar in that 06 class. And this is Tebow and Spikes and Percy Harvin and Riley Cooper and um, so many, many, many guys that came in that 06 class. They really were good. But we hadn't really earned the, the victory like a lot of guys did participate or whatever, but you didn't put in the time in the off season. Like there wasn't that it's just, it's, and it's impossible. Like it's, yeah, you worked hard, no doubt. Like it was, there was no question that we worked hard, but once we got through 07 and that's when there's like, there's trouble in the swamp in the series. And they start talking about that. It is you, we are, we're not good. We're super splintered. We're overinflated of what we think we can do. And that's when we lose four games. We lose to Michigan in the Capital One Bowl. And that is when Meyer talks about, he's like, that's where the timeline gets wonky inside of the, the docuseries where it's, he's like, you know, it's, we started having problems. So we turned up, you know, we cranked it up and we really put the screws to the players and we were going to have a battle of attrition to lose, you know, we'll happily lose, cut the fat, trim the fat. We'll lose the guys that aren't, aren't worthy or whatever, or are not going to stay around. That's what happens in the 07 off season. So when we talk about that 2007 off season, it is so gnarly. And this is where we're talking. This is now like your, the Matt drills experience of being in combat style. Like you have a combat style drill where it was like all, no rules, and it just was, it, you either are trying to touch the line or you are going to keep the person from touching the line. And they would put offensive line versus defensive line, wide receivers versus DBs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was the final drill that you did. And this was already going through an hour workout, which was only, the only goal was, it wasn't necessarily physically taxing, but it was mentally taxing. It's just, if you weren't perfect, you let your teammates down where like the seniors would be first, they'd be first in line and they'd be in for five seconds of whatever the exercise was. 
and then they would get out. And then the next guy was then juniors or seniors that don't start or whatever. And so you slowly work your way down as a hierarchy. And then the walk-ons and then kickers were like with the walk-ons, like you're in the very, very back of the line, whatever. And you just, it was, it was so serious. The first guys go, they do the drill, they get out. If the second guy in line didn't immediately snap up, have his feet behind the line, be down into an athletic position, be ready to go, the seniors had to go again. And so if you did line one, line two, line three, and then a freshman in line four has his thumb up his ass and he doesn't, isn't ready, then everybody has to go again. And you learned really quickly. Like I remember just, I watched a dude when I was a freshman, uh, this is the Fabio long blonde hair. Dude was like, you know, big old tight end. He kept screwing up. He was slow to whatever his foot was on the line. You know, he wasn't in a proper position, all those different things. And he screwed up like three or four times in a row. So he doesn't have to go. And that's one of the, like the most gut-wrenching parts, even as like a, a third-party observer, you're like, oh, oh no. Like, this is so bad because those guys that are in front are so angry because they've now gone like four or five times. They're blown. And the coaches start to feed into it. Where now they're going to make the seniors go just a little bit longer. And they're going to push them a little bit harder. And then the kid screws up again. Now they're watching them like a hawk. So anything that he doesn't do right is just immediately like, nope, start over. Everybody start over. All of a sudden, we're just in the middle of a drill. He screws up four or five times. I'm just thinking, man, I'm so glad I'm not him. Like, I'm I'm learning through reps of being like, don't be that. He, he ends up just getting punched in the face from one of the the senior de- junior senior defensive linemen, and, and they break his face. Was that Spikes? like shatters his orbital bone? So Spikes doesn't. Um, so Siler tells the story. So Brandon Siler tells the story of doing that to a freshman running back. Oh, okay, I'm getting confused. Um, inside of the weight room. Well, because a lot of dudes got hit in the face. <laughs> it's like which so, one? <laughs> you have to it be was, most specific. Well, for sure, and it wasn't just exclusively for like walk-ons or young freshman guys getting hit in the face. Like our starting punter was being, and I wasn't in the gym for this, but I remember hearing about it happening where it was again, again, it it was the, the um, requirement for perfection of like, if the coaches say your toe is behind the line, you need to put your foot behind the line. You need to put your hand behind the line. You need to put your hand in the ground. Like whatever those things were, that wasn't a suggestion. That was a, a requirement that if not followed, brought violence to you because of the repercussions that would then penalize the entire group and penalize the entire team. And man, our starting punter who uh, back in that 0506 time period, he was whatever having a day and wasn't going to put his hand behind the line and was making everybody have to start over, making everybody have to start over. And I remember he got knocked out. One of the defensive linemen just punched that dude right in the face, like right on the spot. And just, it was like, there were two hits him getting hit in the face and him hitting the ground. And it just, so it just was, it was not saved for anyone in particular. It just was the expectation was perfection. Now, and just, yeah, to, go ahead. sorry, but just to jump in for a second, when you first walked in, so a couple of parallels, firstly, I had um, Captain Dale die on, and he's the one who trained um, the band of brothers cast the the platoon. Cast, I mean, all these, these, sure, uh, sure. these military movies, the boot camp, the guys, and for example, saving private Ryan, they deliberately left um, Matt Damon out of a lot of the, and the same with um, uh, the guy that plays Ross and Friends in the Band of Brothers. He was kind of um, always given an excuse not to train, so there was resentment, so it kind of showed sure. on camera. Yeah, I remember in in you know many situations where someone would show up and we already had a tight, cohesive crew, 
And there is that feeling of who the fuck are you? You haven't deserved, you haven't earned your right to be in, you know, this this fire department, you know, whatever it is. So if when you first walked in, you know, was there a, a glaring feeling of being on the outside? Was that still, even though you didn't win initially, or like you said you won and then there was a downfall, was there already that strong cohesion that you you realized you really had to earn the, the spot and the trust of the team that you're trying to join? As a class, you do. And that was where, again, as, as a walk-on, this is your this is your reality 100% of the time because you're not a producer yet. So again, I, I think we've referenced it before, but I cannot, I cannot emphasize how real it was, which was when Meyer and Siler talk, but they talk about it in that first episode of Swamp Kings, where it's, I'm going to treat my superstars like superstars, and I'm going to treat my shit like shit. And if you don't want to be treated like shit, then do something to change it. And it's like, that is in that 10 seconds is the perfect, like just synopsis of what it was like to work with Meyer. It's he was going, you were going to get everything. It's like slash and burn farming. He was going to get everything out of the ground. Whatever we were there, whoever he had, he was going to get them like it was. He was going to squeeze as much blood out of that turnip as humanly possible. And it was up to you then to decide how you wanted to be treated. And it only came with performance. So as a class, as a walk on, you just the guys that make it. And the, and there were some really there were solid studs. There's uh, like James Smith and Billy Latsko. Like these were guys that came in as walk ons and ultimately get scholarships like almost instantly because they're such like James Smith was a walk-on that becomes the starting long snapper in like Oh five. And so he's well-established by the time I'm there, he holds, he ties the record for the most starts that uh, any player in Florida history, any Florida player. And he, this dude was a walk-on Billy Latsko becomes a starting fullback. So there's some dudes where it's like, if you ha- already have that me- mentality and mindset in lock, which is like me against the world, I'm going to prove myself that you were going to be successful. The struggle that we watched, because then I watched it for years and I started to learn about it in when I first come in is scholarship guys were told their shit doesn't stink. They were told that they were God's gift to earth and man in order to recruit them. So imagine like, not only imagine the difference for you guys from like, as a firehouse where you're going to bring in a new guy, that's going to come in. Like you said, he's kind of on the outside, but imagine if he was told that he was like, the world's greatest firefighter in the history of firefighting. Which is going on now. And I'll tell you why. Because when I first joined the fire service, like Anaheim, California, I tested against a thousand certified firefighter EMTs and or paramedics. Today, there's such a hiring deficit that there's no crucible. And this is what's an interesting parallel is you happy. And I'm not saying that people getting hired now are arrogant and everything, but and we'll go back to your perspective, but when you don't have to fight tooth and nail for that position, when you don't have to get up, which I did, I'm not glorifying it, you know, doing doing a workout and your lunch break from your shitty office job. And then when you go back running four miles in a Florida storm and doing pull-ups on the apartment stairs and getting fucking ready for a job that you want more than anything. Yep. But you just get to show up and take the test. And if you don't have a bad background check, then you basically walk through the door. It's a very, very dangerous environment for a, group of people that 
not downplaying football, but this group of people are the ones that are going to be responding to save your fucking child's life. No, and I think it, it's really valid, and I think it's super fair to call that out right now because it's there were a lot of parallels that get made of like, we're fighting to go to Iraq. We're training like we're going to Iraq. Like there was a lot of military, like there were dudes that we had on our team that were former military, that were Marines, that were ra- an army ranger. We had an army ranger that was on the team. You won't be able to get in contact with, with him. He doesn't answer anyone's calls. I'm 100% convinced he's in the CIA now. Because he was applying for FBI, CIA jobs when he was finishing school. If you're listening, like if it you was, could let, let us know, that would be great. <laughs> it's, if he's listening, I would love that because he's because his perspective was so different. And his story is amazing. And I can share his name with you when we're offline of being like, if you want to poke around, but it's like no one's been able to get in contact with him for years and he's not dead. So the reality is, but he was such a stud, but his perspective was so unique. And that's where it was like, there were so many, you know, we watched clips before every single game. You'd have like highlight reels to get you pumped, like literally right before we're going to go to the stadium to go play. When we're in the hotel. Everybody comes in. We're all dressed up in suits or whatever. They sit us down and they show us a highlight tape. And we always had great clips, right? Gladiator, the Matrix scene in the elevator. We're like in the lobby where it just it goes ham in the original Matrix. And for sure, Black Hawk Down, right? Of like, don't drop the rifle. Don't miss the rope. Like it was like so many of those. You have so many that's natural with athletes to want to be able to make those connections and coaches want to make those connections to the military, but it's not right. It really is just a game, but those principles, everything that you've just described is that was very, very real for us. And that trusting your brother, we talked, you know, foxhole mentality, right? You trust that when you do your job, that was everywhere. That was all Myers thing was do your fucking job. You're not, your job is not to worry about your brother doing his job because he has to do his. All you worry about is you do your job. And if you got 11 guys on the field for four to six seconds, going as hard as they can go and doing their goddamn job, you win. And so that just gets beat into us, but definitely the mentality of the other. And it definitely got worse for me as I ended up being there all the way to 2010 when things were different. Meyer had kind of quit and kind of not and had taken a step back and just wasn't as involved because he was dying. And that was kind of where a lot of folks call out some bullshit of like, oh, Meyer had this plan or this, whatever. And we just had such a unique perspective as a special teams unit where we're around some of the coaches when they're by themselves longer. And we just could see like, he's losing weight. Like he looks ill. There's something wrong. And then that was what was interesting from the docuseries to be able to kind of hear some of his thoughts and some of those things that were going on and be like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. But then to zoom back what our original conversation was in your question, where it's like, as a freshman class, you come in and it is, you're told that you're, those scholarship guys are told that they're God's gift to green earth. And then they show up and realize, oh, oh no, dude, like you're going to have to fucking earn this. And there were some guys that just couldn't. They couldn't mentally get over that hurdle as they were told that they were the best. And they show up and it's like, no, dude, you're lower than fucking dirt. Like the coaches don't give a shit about you. And again, it's to the level of which they were used to. They were the man. You're in high school. You're the man. I shit. I was the man in high school, but you, it's like, I knew I, I didn't get a scholarship. So I already knew that mountain that I was having to climb to like earn and prove myself. So just an insatiable appetite 
to prove others wrong, to be able to earn my way. Like those pieces, like that's just, that's what I ran on where other guys run on being the man. They run on being in the limelight. And, um, and so you had to earn it. And so as a class, you had to earn it. Tebow talks about it, right? He had to earn his way and earn that respect from B-side. Like Siler started to earn his, like started to earn it and, and trust like that Tebow was willing to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. You talked about, you know, the, what ended up being fistfights because the guys are going over and over and over again. A prime example in my career, Hialeah, we all got hired on paper as civilians, and then they realized that a bunch of us were already firefighters and, and uh, EMTs, and a couple were actually paramedics already. And so they had a, they split the class, all of us that were already certified, they literally beat the shit out of us for three months straight. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Whilst this other class went through fire academy and EMT school if they needed it. And one of the guys on the other side was a paramedic already. And I don't know how the fuck this guy even got through fire school, but somehow he did. So they come back now and they join us as these these fire recruits. And they are beasting us. And this guy is, is exactly, he's kind of underlining what you're saying. He thinks the shit don't stink. It's a kind of hiring was competitive and Hialeah was one of the only ones, but they paid so poorly at the time. I think they still do that. There was a sense of, well, you know, they're lucky to have me kind of thing. And I remember sure. he PT'd um, and I don't know. I think it was, I think we watched this particular event because it was this other class going through this, but this guy was such a piece of shit. They pulled out a lazy boy and put it on the draw ground and sat his ass down while everyone did all the extra PT because of him. And to your point, it didn't phase him. I would have, I mean, that would have killed me. I would have Absolutely. fucking kept, put that lazy boy on my back and done push-ups. I wouldn't be able to do them, but, you know, I've tried to do push-ups to try and, you know, say sorry and, and, and make it up. But like you said, that process, as unfair and obviously, you know, dangerous, some of the results, that shows the character of the person who's failing for Do sure you really care about this and you are gonna take responsibility and ownership and fix it or do you, are you a prima donna or is your heart not in it in the first place and now we can see it clearly and we can get rid of you and i and i think that truly is right that that's that is the goal because you need to get that figured out if you're talking about your example you need to figure that out right there you can't figure that out on an active call when people need to be saved. Like that's not the time to figure out that the guy that's to your left is a bitch. And that was for us where it was, we couldn't do, it can't get to, well, we have to go score or you have to hold this or we have to kick. We, we were in a situation where like uh, in 2009, we beat Georgia in overtime. Right. And we had to go kick a field goal to win the game last second, go kick the field goal. And all, and, and, and it just was like all the players, of course, are freaking out. And I'm the long snapper at this time. And they're coming over. They don't, they don't talk to us. They don't fucking talk to us ever, 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 ever. They never speak to us at any time, at any moment. We keep to our corner. We do our job. We come on, we come off. As long as we make and do what we do, everybody leaves us alone. It's an expectation. Shit. The, 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 uh, Field goals are barely even tele like televised. PATs are barely even shown on TV. It just is they scored and oh yeah, there's the kick and then off we go. Like we're gonna go. It's it's an assumption. 
And all of a sudden now everybody wants to come over and tell us like, Hey man, you got this. It's like, we're like, yeah, we, we know, <laughs> we know we've got it. Like this is, it's really big for all of you right now. Cause now you're paying attention, but it's, this is what we do. And we just went out and kicked and we win the game. And it was fucking awesome. But it was like, there was no doubt because we had already earned that shit back in February and the years before. So that that's where like that level of trust is just there. And that has to be earned. And it's only earned through like blood. It, it truly, you can't, it's not earned through talk or earned through how fat, like it, it's earned through suffering. At least it was my experience where it was and we did and we suffered and it wasn't just the mat drills like mat drills were the combat thing yeah it was really intense at 100 we all collectively as a group of players hate the month of february because that's when we did mat drills in the off season so it's like we that that month will forever be cursed and thank god it's the shortest month and it just was like but there was also how we worked in the weight room it really was, it, it wasn't about strength. It wasn't about getting stronger. It was about putting you sometimes literally in a corner and getting motherfucked so bad and pushed so hard to where you will fail. There's not a question. It just is how long are you willing to hold on until you do? And you don't understand that as a young guy. You don't get it. You get it a couple years later because now you've <laughs> made it through and you haven't died and you didn't quit. So you've got like are now firmly on the bandwagon. But it's like early on, you don't know, you don't understand. And they did a good job about like spikes explaining like, dude, I, I came here to play football. Like, I don't know what we're doing in here because they don't explain it. It just is. No, you're you are just going to get motherfucked to death and, and you're going to be put on the leg press machine and you will only get out when you start weeping and hoping that your mom was there. So you, and as we speak now, you've got well into the world of strength and conditioning, you know, strong fit. I mean, all the different areas now, um, I've had a, you know, a huge, um, metamorphosis in the way I look at strength and conditioning versus, for example, 10, 15 years ago, when you look back now with a 2023 coach's eyes, talk to me about the strength and conditioning. Cause when I'm watching the exercise and I understand exactly what you're saying, it was less about perfect form and more about grit, but overall the programming to make you guys fitter and stronger what was it already there or um when you look back now with today's lens was it um not behind the times you know had, would they have come a lot further now on that side than what we got to witness on the television i think that i think that they learned I think early on it had to be barbaric like for the style of play. Listen, it's, I'm not telling you whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but how that coaching staff was going to run, how the ship was going to be ran required barbaric style training and mental toughness because it's you're mentally weak. Like it was, this was their tool to break you down. They had to break you down into that clean slate. And those of you that asked too many questions and didn't want to do it or were like, fuck this, then you got, you transferred, you quit. And then all that's left are folks that are willing to be broken down and then willing to build back up. I think we saw an evolution even during my time there where it was, it stopped being as barbaric because I think there were unintended consequences, right? In the year of 07, 
I think we had like 15 dudes tear ACLs. Yeah, and that that performance versus wellness longevity is an important part of the overall conversation. For sure. And I think we had and and, and I and I and there's no way, right? There's no way that that's an expectation. And I'm not and I'm not saying that how we trained was why that happened. But what I am telling you is that is we had a number of things that happened that I believe we evolved where there was a time to, to turn those screws and put screws to guys and get them to go. And then there was a time where we did then start to train because for sure I got stronger, but I had friends that were like at Colorado that were playing, that were scholarship athletes and stuff and how they trained and how I read about how Georgia trained, how I read about how some of the, I see some of the strength and conditioning, you know, articles and things that break down how certain players are training or whatever it was certainly now. And it's, it's also not how we train. <laughs> it's, not <laughs> we tra- it's not how we trained at all. Um, but we were speed. It was, it was like speed was priority. We never maxed out. We did, you know, we always were working triple extension. We always were working these pieces. Um, that wasn't how I heard other dudes were training, but at the time you don't question, you're not questioning anything. And so definitely looking back on it, that lens, I think it's really important. And I enjoy, like I come into schools now, like for the local high school where I'm at and in the month of February, I'll come and I do mental toughness training for the football team where they come in and once or twice a week is I'm going to put them through a workout that's going to tax them and push them mentally, but for high school guys, but because there's just this, there is an element that's missing. And this is a piece that I think is, is I'm not condoning it. Right. But I do know what the end product was, which was, all of us talk about as a collective unit now, years later, it's there's nothing, literally nothing that we go through in this life that is going to, that is harder than what we went through then. There's no boss that's more intimidating. There's no situation that's more stressful. It's, we've, it's literally made it to where our bar is so high that our ability to then just perform, you have a lot of dudes that are very, very high performers in their regular lives now. And it's because you're the result that iron sharpens iron type of a deal. Like you were forged in this scenario. And that is, as I look at like future generations of kids that are coming through. And as I look at other people that struggle with just regular life, it's like, oh, you just haven't done anything hard. And that is where for me, there is an element of that. I liked about the strong fit that I liked about certain elements of suffering, getting on a sled and making your soul bleed, right? Those concepts, it's really important, whether it's cold tank, whether it is, right? It's it's any of these things that are hard, you don't want to do. People just aren't doing hard things enough anymore. So the most stressful our day gets is when somebody cuts us off in traffic or when your boss maybe does say something to you that you don't like or whatever, somebody leaves a comment that you, that you disagree with. And now all of a sudden you become a keyboard warrior. Like it's, oh, and and I think Rogan does a good job of like, of calling this out quite a bit on his podcast where it just is like, I'm, he's like, I'm a better person when I make myself kind of suffer a little bit in the gym. And I cannot, I cannot connect with that stronger. For me, it is like, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better colleague. I'm just a better human because I push myself to those limits and allow myself to suffer just enough. Just remember, like it's 
it's going to be okay. Like you're, you're a bitch and you're going to fight that urge and push that envelope. Um, and I think that that got forged there at that moment. And, and I think for men, I really like for men, for boys, I think it's, it's vitally important. And I'm not saying we need to send the kids off when they turn seven, the way the Spartans did and turn them into men. But I am saying there's an element here that is missing in just our general ethos as a community where we're not allowing men to be formed and forged. I had Doug Orchard on the show. He's the man who made the documentary, The Motivation Factor. I don't know if you ever watched that about the sure. 1950s, 60s PE program in California. And the the suffering was just the bar, but it was shared suffering again. And, you know, you look at what you had to do to earn whatever the, I think it was gold or, or blue, but the top short color, you're talking about seven pegboard ascents. I think it was a three mile partner carry. I mean, crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff. But you look at this, you know, the senior class, every one of them could have been on the front of muscle and fitness today, every single one of them. But the beautiful thing about that was even the kid that, you know, wanted to be great at the oboe was still in really good shape. He may only, or he, you know, it was, it was he at the time, but if it was today, he or she may only have color X on their shorts, but you're forging all these great people. Each group was, was a team of kids that had to, you know, rise up together. So now you're getting community and it's the shared suffering, which as we said before, binds people. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but obviously you got into the world of education. While we're on this topic, talk to me about your perspective of physical education in schools. And again, if you're king for a day, what would John do to change it? Oh man, PE in schools. One, they just kept cutting it. So I got into the world of education. The one thing that gives me a, a, a little bit different of a perspective, though, is I never I never worked for public education. I ended up only working for private schools. And um, as I got into private, because that was just the first gig I got, is that I worked for um, a military school, an all-boys military school in Virginia. And then we moved to Florida back into the Tampa area, and I worked for a co-ed boys and girls private school. That was a non like non-denominational, non-religious private school. Um, and when I would look and see what was happening on the public side where public teachers made more money, you made more money than private school teachers. And so there was an allure there. But as I want for money wise, but then and I watched as the bureaucracy, you know, and, and Jamie Oliver's food revolution. Right. I remember watching that. Um, earlier, right. That was before I, I got into education fully, but just seeing like these incredible struggles that were just common sense. It just became very clear that the goal was not to have a physically fit populace. The goal is not that. And, and you'll get me on my soapbox with education. Please go ahead. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, because it's, it's the, 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 it is very clear that the purpose of our educational system in the United States is not to create individuals, right? It's very clear through the, that the Prussian models that got put in and the support that, you know, at the turn of the century in the industrial revolution, that Carnegie and all these cats came in and knew the importance of just keeping every, keeping that standard so minimal so that we have people be able to read the instructions, read the dials and turn the knobs to be able to have a working class of humans continue to be built up to work those factories. Meanwhile, 
everyone else is being private schooled or individually tutored. It's like no surprise that anybody that's ever done anything in our country dropped out of school as soon as they could to be able to pave their own way or were homeschooled. Like it just was just homeschooled. And this was before it was like a religious zealot type connection that homeschooling got for quite a while. And then post 2020, people kind of started like, well, maybe it's not just crazy religious people that are doing this. And we started kind of seeing the writing on the wall. But for PE, there's a reason why it started getting cut and it started being less than, um, you know, oh, well, now it's every other day. And now maybe it's once a week they do PE and you watched art and music and you watched all these these pieces go by the wayside. And we ended up saying what was more important. Meanwhile, we just feed our kids just some of the most horrific things on earth and then expect them to be able to sit down and pay attention and do whatever. And so with education being that way and with PE being that way, it is if I'm king for a day, <laughs> it's anarchy. It's mass anarchy. It's, it's you have to burn this system down. And that's where it's, I made a huge connection where I really wanted to fight to be able to bring good and change education as a teacher, as an administrator and be able to flip classrooms and have classrooms be more of a place of collaborative nature and, and great, just the grades have to not, but, but I'm work grades don't have to matter to the degree that they do, but I'm working in college prep private schools. So when I was at the military school, I saw a significant need for kids that you need to have top 10%, the kids that are going to go to college and they have huge aspirations to be surgeons and, and, and doctors and all sorts of things of, of amazing quality and levels that require college. But I saw in a massive group of students that were being lost and forgotten. So for me, it was, I have to have, even within these college prep systems, I have to have systems to capture those that are not going to go do that, that are going to go into the trades. I have to have partnerships with the local trades groups and with the local colleges that are here that are going to help people get certificates. It was equally important for me to be able to have those tracks and have very clear tracks, not to stick someone in them and have them be stuck there, but to be able to introduce it to them and have them. It's that, that political cartoon where there's, right, there's a goldfish and an elephant and a giraffe and a monkey. And they're all sitting there and there's the tree. And it just says, the test is whoever can climb the tree gets an A, go. And it just was like, for me, that was, that is what education is for us in our country. And I got tired of that and having to fix it. But then I realized the phrase, I have to fix it. I felt this overwhelming desire to fix it. And that's where, as I continue to read and learn, it was, oh, no, there's nothing to fix. The system's working exactly the way it was built to work. And this is exactly where it's, it's meant to be exactly as it is. It's meant to have people feel the way they feel. It's meant to have kids drop out. It's meant to, it just is, it's, that's what it's built to do. And that's where, for me, we talked about hyper-localization and hyper-community. And that's where, again, it's like, as a community, you have to identify what are the needs of the people that are in your area, what are the needs of the kids that are in your area, and then start to build mentorship programs, build programs to be able to pick those kids up. Because it has to be gone are the days that you're told that because you can't get an A, it's because you're stupid. And then and put it in, you know, put it into a child's mind that it's like, I'm not good at math. You know, 
know, that's what I was told. It's like, well, it's, it's well, you know, you know, your dad's not good at math or I'm not good at math. So you're not good at math. And that's how that works. And it just is so detrimental for have generations of people that are told that, but it is the physical aspect is the most dangerous. And that's where for me it is getting, whether it's PE, getting kids moving, getting kids, whether they're playing sports or just lifting weights, being exposed to all the different varieties. It's you will eventually stop playing sports. It just, it, it happens, right? We all end up not getting to be able to do that anymore, but you'll be able to exercise and move your body for the rest of your life. And that is where, in my opinion, like physical education, nutrition, all those things, they're so, they can be taught so simply, but it is a vicious cycle of what parents are doing at home, what they're going to do. And being like, it's, you don't have that support. So you have this, this massive populace that all has to be able to be supported in the right way. And it becomes very daunting. That's why for me, it was always just like, this thing has to get burnt down. It has to get burnt down first and then be able to be built up on like local levels. And then that always gets squirrely because then people get all butthurt about like, well, what is it going to be like in Alabama versus what it's going to be like in California and be able to build out and then kind of have these like city states that are being broken up and then creating the programs that are specific to their uh, their populations. I think the crazy thing is if you just go far enough back, we have this arrogance like, oh, now we have to invent this thing or, you know, we're, we're forging a path over here and it's like, we'll take movement and nutrition. Just go back a hundred years. That's it. Mic drop. Yep. Grow mm-hmm. your own food. If you're going to eat meat, let it eat grass or, you know, peck through worms or whatever it is, you know, move. Don't, sit on a chair, get into a car, go to a classroom for eight hours, get into a bus, go sit on a chair again, walk to school. You know, I mean, this we've created so much comfort. Like you said, I had Michael Easter on who wrote The Comfort Crisis. You know, that's that's it. And the problem is we're also put into these boxes. And I'll, I'll throw higher education into this too. I went to University of um, uh, North London, which is now I think Metropolitan University, and did two years of a British degree in sports science and fitness evaluation. And then I did my last two years in UF, like 30 years later. And one semester at UF prepared me for the uh, NSCA CSCS. That was a great semester. Sure. All the other shit, nothing prepared me to actually walk out those doors and truly be a better athlete or a good coach. Now, I could put a lab coat on and sit, you know, for 12 weeks and test someone's fucking vertical jump and then make a bunch of algebraic equations. Mm-hmm. But for the money and time that I invested, I should have walked out the door being able to coach all kinds of shit. And this is the problem I see. And then the prereqs to even get to that point, you oh, know, yeah. and the financial side, and you know, I'll, I'll be full transparent. I get calls all the time from UF saying, hey, do you want to donate? Do you want to donate? I'm like, I've got tens of thousands of dollars worth of fucking you know student loans to pay off first and you're asking for handouts i'll give mm-hmm. the dude at the traffic light some money you don't <laughs> you don't need fucking handouts right now so this is the problem within these systems are great human beings don't get me wrong amazing right. professors and teachers and and coaches and but the system there has gone from Let's get the you know let's get the people that require this track the doctors the lawyers I mean my wife's in medical school now as an optometrist she needs to go through a medical school program she needs higher education right but I forged my path through a trade school 
Fire school is a trade school. Paramedic school is a trade school. And these mm -hmm. are life-saving skills. So taking away that profit-driven education system and putting it back to, you know, let's give these establishments the tools and the support and the finance that they need, but make it affordable so that kid in Pine Hills can actually mm -hmm. become a lawyer if he has the skill set. You know what I mean? But we've created such a barrier to entry. And like you said, there's this, this kind of caste system where, well, you're born in, you know, Pine Hills, Orlando, then yeah, you're going to be a great, you know, factory worker. Oh, but you grew up in, you know, Belle Isle, Florida. I'm oh, sorry, Pine Hills, Florida. You were in Belle Isle, Florida on the lake in your million dollar house. Well, yeah, you're going to be fine as a lawyer. So right. I agree. We're not, it's not a community focused education system. It's become so rigid. And you look back at, you know, Victorian times, we were training factory workers that we, the people, again, need to rise up as with our political system and go, the system is broken. And how do we know that? Because every four years, we get a fucking idiot out of 330 million people. So rather than fighting over your messiah that's either 120 years old or a bright orange narcissist, how about you take a step back and actually rise up and fix the system? And the same with education. My son's and schools are awesome and there's some amazing teachers and amazing mentors and the ROTC program, JROTC, and the track program, the cross-country program. I love those people. So give them a fucking environment where they can amplify their amazing teaching skills so that they can elevate all these children and then forge you know, an incredible path where they are fit and they are excited to get into whatever career they're thinking about. I could not agree more. The issue, in my opinion, what it truly comes down to, and you alluded to it, it's the same reason why you can't fix the homeless crisis. Because you have too many people that have jobs to fix the homeless crisis. It's a cottage industry. And you have too many cottage industries that are built to, well, we need to change what the testing is. And this is what the standardized testing is. And you have millions and millions of dollars. And you have lots and lots of people. And you have lots and lots of lobbyists that are all built to work on the education system. We can't fix the education system because just like you said, it's, well, then just go back a hundred years, go back a hundred years where now people are able just to have a little bit more accountability and, and let the local communities just take it over and not have so much big government that's involved. The problem is it'll never happen unless things drastically change and happen on the local level. And like you said, people rising up, but it's, it's no small task. It, it has to start local because you won't be able to solve it national because you have too much money. You have too many people with jobs getting paid millions of dollars every single year to solve problems where a lot of people are like, you know, this seems simple enough like this, seems, but it's like, yeah, but there's no money in your solution it's the war and you're an I solution. Oh, oh, absolutely. Right. So it's like, it's, but there's no money in the solution. There's no money in the cure for cancer, right? But there's, there's solid money in keeping us sick. There's solid money. And that, I don't want to have us go too many rabbit holes, but there's, they're all, these are all tied together. These solutions where we're like, man, the solution just seems like what our grandparents and great grandparents were doing. Like we can, a mix of this with, with the technology that we have now, like this just seems like we could bring this together. And we have so many good examples that are out there. I live 30 minutes from Polyface. 
So I've been with Joel Salatin multiple times when he's doing his lunatic tours, being on that site. My kids go to the farm camp that's there. I'm just down the street. And you have just so much knowledge that exists, not just at his spot, but multiple farms that are in this area where I'm at in Virginia of people that want you to learn. They want you to, I, I, I have, now I live in a city area, so I can't keep you know, goats and uh, pigs and cows, but I have chickens. I have a lot, of, I have a lot of chickens, too many for where I live in the city area that I live in. And, but the reality is, is that for me, it's, it's that, and I have a big garden and we have those pieces because it just is, there are little pieces here where you start to take back and remove yourself from that system. But I learned early on, it's, if you want, there is a, a fine line where if you want to be able to make change or make a difference, you cannot just, you can't go be a hermit and live in a cave. It may be what's uh, what I want to do at times. I want to go completely off grid, come cut it off completely, be totally self-sufficient. I know my wife would be happy that we don't have to interact with other people anymore. But the reality is, is that if you want to be able to play the game, you have to stay in the game and now start to play that game on your own terms. And like you said, individually, I think there's lots of amazing people. There's guys that I played with that are amazing people. You know, Brandon Seiler, like we've talked about before, like his taking everything that he learned and all the passion that he has and now the programs that he's doing and the good that he's trying to do and give back and help the people in his local communities. I think you have a lot of really great examples that are football players and professional athletes that go back to the communities that they're from because they're not waiting for Superman. They're not waiting for someone to swoop in and save them. And it can be a very jaded conversation and it can be a very cynical conversation, but it doesn't stop there because if you have the platform and you have the means to be able to make a difference and make a change, then you just go do it. And I think that that mentality just comes from, again, being made that way. It's you've been forged to become those people where it's just like, I'm not sitting around and waiting to get this figured out. Like, I'm just going to go do it. And that's what becomes the most fun. And it's been the most enjoyable for me is as I've just gone and did shit, I've been able to meet you and meet amazing people in my life because it's people that are end up like, it's just a attraction, right? As you go, it's magnetic. As you run into certain humans and you're like, that's someone I need to be around. I need to hear their thoughts. I need to read the words that they write. I need to be able to be involved with what they're involved in. And that, but you have to know how to identify those people and also be willing to not get stuck in your own shit. I think a lot of us just get stuck. And there was lots of dudes, even when we go back just to football, where it's like, they get stuck. They get all, uh, you know, they're in their emotions, as we're saying nowadays, right? They're just so deep in their emotions. There's just, there's no way they're not getting out. You can't save them. It's like quicksand. So it's just like, well, then you're going to have to figure that out, dude. But there's enough of us that are forging forward and onward that we're able to go and try and make, you know, actual change. When I've made posts and and it looks like this show, just like this conversation, you know, it's pulling problems out when they come up in the conversation. I don't want to be the whole doom and gloom episode every single time, (laughs) but um, occasionally be like, why don't you just go back to England then? (laughs) Well, because you know who does that, sees a problem and then fucking runs away? A little Mm -hmm. bitch. You know, Mm -hmm. if you truly love your country, you fucking dig your heels in and you change it. 
And this is the problem, you know, where we had the left and the right and the this and the that, this fucking World War One trench mentality that we saw the last three years more than ever. It's like, well, if you actually care, if you're truly a patriot, if you truly love this country, what are you doing to fix it? What are you doing to be that mentor? What are you doing to, I mean, even in my neighborhood here, we had, you know, I've talked about this a couple of times. We had a kid like terrorizing this community with with his driving. I mean, he was, it was like 25 mile an hour zones where all the streets are. I mean, there are kids everywhere. And it's the kind of community where the kids can literally come home when the streetlights come on. A beautiful sure. kind of central area with a football pitch and soccer pitch, um, you know, and, and um, basketball courts and everything, a, a path that goes all the way around. So a child can literally be there the whole time, be safe, unless someone's driving like a fucking asshole, which this kid was. And he was doing like 60 through our neighborhood, almost wiped out in front of a bus stop full of kids at one point. And again, I went, I basically was like, you know, does anyone know who this is? What are we going to do to fix it? And then it was like, oh, they need to put in speed bumps. They, they, they. And I'm like, fuck they. We. What are we going to fucking do? So anyway, I went to a friend of mine who has, who's in our local police force and reached out to the fucking cop that protects here. He said mm-hmm. the fucker didn't even respond to his, his messages. So I'm like, all right, motherfucker. Well, then thanks, you know, fellow fucking first responder piece of shit. I guess I got to <laughs> fix this myself. So I did some internet creeping, found this kid. Again, kudos to the community. There's a couple of people gave me some clues on who he was. Mm-hmm. Found his dad. Went to the dealership his dad works in, sat my ass down in front of him, professionally, with a kindness in my heart. I'm like, your child is going to not only kill other people, but kill himself. I've yeah. seen what this happened, you know, how this ends too many fucking times. I mean, I'm almost like tearing up talking to him. That's how you know passionate I am. This man makes a phone call to his wife there and then. They take his keys away for six months. <laughs> He's come back in this neighborhood six months later and hats off to this this kid every time i've seen him driving he's driving normally again he learned his lesson so do i throw my arms up and just say they need to fix it or do i roll up my sleeves and that particular thing i was able to make a difference in my community this is not a yay james you know that's amazing story this is a i was able to stop people from probably being killed just because i fucking did something if each one of us did something Imagine the effect we would have not only in this country but on the world. Just do one thing. It's just, just one thing. Just do your and job. And it is. <laughs> just do just do your job because it is. It's, it's it, that is the, an element of the community where, and it is this. We've been taught and we've been conditioned the same way that m- the team that I was a part of and the, the the men that I played football with, the same way that you were conditioned in good units that you were a part of. It's you can also be conditioned or deconditioned to be the opposite. You can become baby birds, right? You can become, you know, the difference between right a, a, a feral pig and a wild pig is how it's treated. Still a pig, still the same animal, but are you going to be tough and have teeth and can you take care of your shit? Or are you going to get fat and happy because you're being fed? And I think that there is, there's so many parallels that come with that of what majority of people have experienced for so long, which is, I just need to be fed. I'm a baby bird. I need to be fed. And it's safe that way. It's like, yeah. But the problem is, is that eventually that pig does get taken to slaughter. And I think it's, 
folks that may have bucked at that prior to 2020, I believe that that number has gone down. I believe more people have lived life a little bit and have experienced some things that have pushed just collectively being like, we might just need to take care of ours. And, and by what I mean by ours is our local communities, the people where we can make a difference. You can make a difference in that neighborhood. We all through that one action of just doing our job of hope, being accountable and holding accountability. And that's been one of the toughest things to see in education is the lack of accountability that is on students. My son hasn't done homework since kindergarten. He's in eighth grade, James. What the fuck are we talking about? You're telling me that I have to assign homework to my kid? Because what, in the area that I live in, all the children are destined to work for the Hershey factory or the Lycra company or Little Debbie, because those are the major employers in the area or the Target distribution center or the 1 million square foot Amazon distribution center that just got built a million square feet. So that's where, that's what my son's destined to do. That's why he doesn't need to do homework because fuck him. It's either like he as well as he's not in advanced classes, then he's not going to college. He's 12. What the fuck are we talking about right now? And it's, I care greatly. Not because I believe in college. I believe in choice. The ability to put these kids in an opportunity to put people in an opportunity to be able to make a choice. And you have so many communities that are just hook, line, sinker, going in step with what the narrative is that are just allowing these kids and these families because their lives are not good. The hard, times are hard. Mom and dad aren't around. All those things that we've talked about before. And it's like, okay, then those kids are just, those choices, they're being made for them. And those families don't know that. And that's if that kid beats the odds because right now, a high school graduation rate that's below 60%. Below 60%. You know what happens when you have a community that has high school graduation rates that are that low? It ceases to exist in a decade. And there's no way we're alone. These little communities that are all over the country. And it's like you're sitting around waiting for the men north of Richmond, right, to show up. And solve your problems. And it just has to be enough people saying, you know, fuck that. And you did see that. South has shown that. A little bit of the Midwest has shown that. Of being like, you know, fuck that. We're just, we're just going to do it. We'll just do it. We'll figure it out. You know, you have some areas now that are completely like delegalizing the ability to like sell your own food and do all these own things. I think it was even in like New Hampshire or somewhere. Right. It's like it's you have these areas that are starting to kind of push that envelope. You just have to have enough people that are willing to rise up. And I think that's what you're calling out, which is the idea of like we the people standing up. You have to have people stand up. But you have record number, you have a record low of kids that are playing organized sports anymore. You don't have it's now esports. Well, think about this. You have kids that literally physically struggle to stand up. Mm -hmm. That's how fat and sick and and de um, what's the word, um, yeah they 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 don't even have the strength and conditioning of a normal child that would have played. Forget about sports; it would have been running, jumping, climbing, etc. You see these kids, and some of them they aren't. And again, there's some phenomenal athletes out there. There's a lot of healthy kids. Again, it's not tarring; it's it's identifying the the worrying signs, but the skinny kids have kyphosis 
you know, they have no muscle tone. So this is the right. thing. It's not just obesity. It's the ability to, like you said, physically stand up for your country if you can't even physically stand up. Mm. So, and that's where, again, it's, it is, like you said, you don't want it to be doom and gloom. <laughs> we don't want it to be totally doom and gloom. And so then what's the solution? The solution is there's a lot of us with strong backs. There's a lot of us that did go through fires of being forged into the men that we are and into the women that we are. And so the reality is, is that it's, then it's up to us. It's up to us to be able to, for me, uh, for, for certainly for your podcast, it's, it's sharing the stories of men and women and amazing humans that were forged in just unimaginable circumstances. And the sharing of those stories binds us and brings us together and raises awareness to things that nobody is wanting to talk about. And it needs to be brought into the, into the light. And then while the same thing for me is that that is that calling that I have found where it's like, there are lots of amazing people that are just regular, ordinary people that did amazing things just for me, from what I would tie to, which is like, they were walk-on athletes. They, they went into this scenario. They went into these situations where they were told that they weren't wanted. They didn't get a scholarship and they still fought through it for who the hell knows why we have this itch in our brain to go do these things. And they were forged into amazing men and women that did stuff that only people could dream of being able to do and have a shot at doing. And they made that way collectively as a group, those people that have strong backs and strong necks. We always used to talk about for football. It's like, you got to have a thick ass neck. Like if you're going to play ball, you got to have a thick ass neck. And we did neck shit all the time. And the whole idea was so you could hold the helmet on your head and not die. Well, Okay, that mentality, a lot of us have people across the globe that have strong backs and strong necks. Well, what's the point of having all that? What's the point of having it? Unless you're going to use it. For me, it was always that. It was always like, what's the point? I, I am only learning what I'm learning and I'm only going through what I'm going through so that I can teach my boys that. So that when my son is 10, he's learning what I know at 34. Cause I'm going to give him a 24 year head start, And for me, that's, that's what it's all about is we got to give these guys this next head start. We're going to give them that jump and we have strong ass necks and strong ass backs to carry people because you don't have to carry them for long because they figure it out and then they get stronger and then they get more emboldened. And that's where it's like that. It hundred percent falls to us because if you're strong and you're capable and you're able, then what are you going to do? Just, take care of you and yours like that's a surefire way i don't know if anyone's seen like a zombie movie but it doesn't work out if it's just you versus everybody unless you're will smith unless unless you're <laughs> will smith he did have a dog he did an amazing dog <laughs> well i i want to get back to football just one thing you mentioned joel salatin now yeah, yeah this is this is an irony one of his books is is titled everything i do is illegal it's and a great he's book. a farmer Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, I haven't actually got to Polyface yet. I meant to get up there before and uh, you know, I haven't got anywhere in the Northeast for a long time, but I, I definitely will. But talk to me about that. You know, you, you actually get there to see the, the, the farm itself, the, the way, you know, like you said, the raw milk and some of these other ones, the, 
industry side got hold of it and the way that we had for example drank milk which i would argue is probably why a lot of us have dairy intolerance because it's not milk anymore um you know it's vilified because of supposedly you know health and safety reasons um to the point now where you know there's monopoly in farming as well and we saw it with monsanto you know the lawsuits against farmers whose seeds are just blown into their land and then they try and shut them down or do shut them down so with you being in that particular area with you interacting with joel and joel's been on the show twice he did another one with me during covid which was amazing it was Um, talk to me about just your perspective on that and educate a lot of people that probably don't even know who joel is on the potential of what the origin of our food could look like again if we advocated for our local farmers to do a similar thing so if you if you are getting introduced to this name for the first time so this is he is synonymous with regenerative regenerative agriculture and the easiest way to explain this is like circle of life right and so the way he runs his farm if we're going to break it down to very simply it just is he has an acre of land his two acres of land on one acre of land, he has it partitioned out where his cows are on that land. And those cows eat the grass that are in that acre. Depending on the number of cows that he has, he keeps those cows on that acre for a certain amount of time that allows the cows to eat the grass down to a certain point. Then he moves those cows to the next acre over. And while the cows are there, cows do what they do, which is they poop, they eat, and they poop, and they move around. They're not causing global warming, just so we all can get out out in front of that insanity. It's when they it's when they buy a, an Escalade that they start impacting yeah, global exactly, warming. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> the cows then get moved to the next acre of land of fresh grass, and that's where they're going to go. Then behind those cows, you bring in chickens. So you bring this big chicken mobile where all these chickens, and they're going to now be partitioned in that acre of grass where those cows were before. Because they pooped. And what poop does is it brings in flies and, and larvae and maggots and all these things that happen, right, naturally. Chickens, the way they eat, right? Because I was so naive to chickens before I got them, right? Chickens eat a very particular way. It's scratch, scratch, head down. Scratch, scratch, head down. They literally back up. It's like they're doing the shuffle. Back, back, down. Back, back, down. And they're scratching the earth. Well, what they do is that they come in and they literally just spread the cow manure all over the grass, and that spreading of that manure allows the grass to get incredibly healthy and get all of the comp- essentially all those minerals that it needs. And chickens are not, they will eat grass, but those are little baby dinosaurs. Make no mistake. I've watched my chickens eat mice, frogs. Like it was in the in the wintertime when you can't get chickens meat. Joel talks about it in his books where the job is the young farmhand, the young man was to go and hunt raccoons or squirrels or rabbits or whatever they could during the winter and literally just gut the animal and throw it in the pen where the chickens were. Because chickens are dinosaurs. They I had eat. them on my farm and they're vicious little bastards too. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're like a hundred times the size of them and they'll still chase your ass across the field. Oh yeah, man. I'm talking, it just, you learn very quickly. Those dead eyes, it's, oh, I get the velociraptor <laughs> thing. Like it's, this is what they are. And they're awesome, but that's what they do, right? And so as you do this, so the chickens follow. And then if you have other animals, you do very similar things where it's you have pigs that come in, they root up the earth with their nose because they have the best trowel that has ever existed and root up earth. And you do this natural rotation of these animals. 
And when you talk to Joel, Joel says he, they're, they're primarily a meat farm, right? Of course, that is what they do. They do meat. He, they hold contracts with Chipotle and, and one of all the major farm um, like restaurants in this area. So he's still playing the industrial game, but with a much higher quality product. And if, when you ask him, well, you, do you work in meat? And he goes, no, I, I don't talk about working in meat. He goes, I'm a grass farmer. For him, it's all about just letting nature do as it does. He talks about like, let the pig exercise his pigness, the pigness of the pig, the cowness of the cow, just letting them be who they are and just setting parameters just around them to be able to kind of control that and not allowing it to be chaos. The difference is, is when you go to their farm, it's there's tons, it's nothing but green. It's green and it's grass. And as you go in, you drive through the farm areas and you see other farms that are there that have cows and it's it's black right it's black it's barren it stinks it reeks because it just is it's they only are eating from a pen they're only eating from the corn and the feed that they're given and it is just it, it's like a, a wasteland and then you get to polyface and just it's a rolling hills of green and grass and um you know he calls himself like the lunatic farmer that is, he's like libertarian, Christian, like anarchic, like it just is, this dude is, this, is, is such a conundrum of all of these things. And it's beautifully packaged in his ability to then teach and explain and just break things down so simply, whereas books are really enjoyable to read as you have just even a general interest in these things. And he recently had a book that came out that deals with like micro farm. So it's like, can you do this in your backyard? And that's where it starts to become a lot more approachable um, and just gives you tools to where you can now say like, all right, maybe. And I have friends that we got chickens and another set of friends had chickens. And the one the guy that's kind of like, well, so you guys got the chickens and stuff. And a year later, he's like, all right, maybe I'll get like a, a little mobile. And so now he's got four or five chickens in his backyard, moving them around. And it just is now his family has eggs. And now it's just, it's this element where it's, it's not a cost thing. This is a peace of mind thing. This is where it's, I don't go to the grocery store to buy eggs. I don't go to the grocery store to buy meat. So I buy all my meat from Polyface. Is Polyface allows you to come in and buy cuts of meat to where you can go and buy directly from them. So you are now bypassing the grocery store to where back in the day it was, it's a little bit more expensive, but I know where it's coming from. The quality is better. When you don't have a lot of money, those are hard things to be like, I kind of just need to eat. I can't, it doesn't, at some level here, like I just need the, the ground beef to be a dollar a pound and it's, I'm going to get it from Walmart. And it's kind of like, well, all right. So we're willing, like you pay now or you pay later. Right. But then the price, I don't know if anyone's seen the prices in grocery stores lately, but it's cheaper to buy the meat directly from the farmer now to where it used to be more expensive. Be. Of yeah. course. And it just is. So it's like, well, then go to the farmer, cut them out. And as you start to get into this world, I just, I warn you, right. It's, it's, it's a slippery slope. You get into this world and it's like, well, now I'm buying only my meat here. And maybe now I have some chickens and now I'll, I get my eggs from here. And then it's like, well, who, who does raw milk? You know, who was offering herd shares? Cause it is illegal. You can't buy raw milk. You have to have a herd share. We have a, a share of a herd of cows that then allows you to be able to reap the benefits of owning that herd share. And then you're able to get that milk, but we get our raw milk. So then we have a farm that's there. And then, so as you start to kind of look in this area of like, well, how much, like, is it possible that I don't go to the grocery store? 
is it possible that I don't have these things that happen anymore? And kind of take that back. But it all started with Joel and Polyface and just their willingness to where you could just show up any day, anytime, walk onto the farm, go wherever you want. And it's um it's been a lot of fun because they do stuff for like the kids as well during the summer. So they bring the kids on, you know, my 10 year old is there and they're culling chickens, teaching the kids how to be able to cull and clean and and handle chickens and do those types of things. And, and they're, they're so game to just work with you and work with the community. So you come in and be like, Hey, so I have this idea and whatever that idea that you say, they're like, okay, like, I like this. Like, let's go. It's like, what does it look like if I want to be able to get like a, a hog and, we just did it here on the farm and you guys just showed us how to do it. They're like, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. Like it just is, they're so game to just work with helping the community do whatever it is that you want to be able to do for them to teach it. Cause it is just a dying, it's a dying trade and dying piece where I think a lot of more people are starting to look to get out of cities, get into the rural areas. Your farmers are where it's at. And I hear people say it all the time and it seems like it's really intimidating, but it's just like, it's as simple as just call your local farmer. It seems bizarre. It seems like you'd be bothering someone, but it's they really do want you to know because their kids may not give a shit. Their grandkids may not care or they, they do want help or they do want to be able to pass on that knowledge because it is dying the same way that it's dying for like plumbers and electricians and trades where the age discrepancy of like the younger generation is just not there and you have a 40 year gap. It's real for farm as well and agriculture. So it's something worth getting into. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate your perspective. I need to get Joel back on because I think talking about what people can do now, I think there's a lot more eyes open. Um, Agreed. But I mean, one thing I've heard, the currency recently has been eggs. And when you have chickens, they're you know all but free. But mm-hmm. I, mean, I know for a long time, they went up to like six, seven bucks here for 12 <laughs> eggs, you know, and it's like, and I would happily pay five, six dollars for eggs that literally were, you know, in a chicken 24 hours prior that were being free range and so yeah it's just reclaiming that and i talk about that the farmers markets and all these things if you Mm -hmm. live in an urban or suburban setting and you can't you know just can't grow i mean you've got hoas and these other things that are barriers too then find your local farms because we saw what happens when there's a monopoly on agriculture a pandemic comes through and no one can get anything and mm-hmm. I've even had this, a, this agri-hood, they call it, in North Carolina. And I had one of the, the, the founders of that. And that's another interesting concept. You build a community around a farm. And right. so when, when COVID hit, they were like, uh, we just went to the farm and got food. You know. <laughs> so I love these ideas. This is why I love this conversation, even though you know, we're going to get back to, to college football now. These are so many important perspectives that people need to understand. We are not educated on any of these things. I mean, as he said, Joel was was vilified by so many organizations, but he's mm-hmm. the very leader in this space that we need to be looking to. And anyone I know who's got into the kind of holistic farming, you know, Joel is their messiah. And I mean that in a positive way. You know, he's the one that's yeah. been walking the walk and being, you know, threatened with with um, you know, legal action his whole his whole life for simply doing what people did a hundred years ago. For sure. And, and I understand the reason for vilification. This is across the board is anytime that anyone wants to bring you together to be able to provide you independence and give you the means to be independent, to think independently, to bring people together. They're the most dangerous. Those are the most dangerous people that exist. So you will see 
across the gamut of people wanting to shut them down and shut that down. And like you said, vilify them for whatever the reason, the, the reason is less relevant as to what was the person saying and why are we trying to quiet them? It's like, ah, this makes more sense. The reasoning becomes far less important for why they want to silence you. It's more or less what the person's being silenced. What were they saying prior to that? And if it's inclusiveness and togetherness and independence and oneness and community, it's like, these all seem like good things. Like, yeah, but you know, he's a racist. It's like, oh, okay, I guess. He doesn't even wear a mask. (laughs) There's no mask. You don't even have a mask. He just tells you that you could just, it's your body, your choice. You're like, Wait, what? I thought this was a good, hold on. I'm confused which team we're fighting for now. And now it's so, it ends up being a lot of that. Exactly. Which I pointed out, you know, apolitical, because it is. For me, politics is, is a facade. These are human beings in all of these different positions. And the last two, at the very pinnacle of our supposed, you know, structure in this country, have deliberately divided. And one of my guests, I've t- told this a few times, made a great, analogy is that all right you're in medieval england and you've got the villagers fighting amongst themselves who are they not looking at now the fuckers in the castle that are taking Mm -hmm. all your money and taxes and everything so understand that this is a very deliberate thing the right do it the left do it a leader unites people especially under crisis and look at the people of new york at 9-11 look at the people of london grenfell fire you know in that area or the bombings Mm -hmm. People want to come together and real leaders emerge. So if you're being divided, know that that's tyranny. That's not leadership. And I don't give a fuck what color tie that person has and what you've signed (laughs) as your allegiance to on your voting poll. Take a step Mm -hmm. back and go, is this person bringing us together? And if the answer is no, they need to fucking go. It's that simple. I like it. All right. Well, (laughs) back to leadership in UF. So I want to get to some of the things that we... We talked about before we hit record, um, you know, the the other side of, of the, the glory of college football. But before we do, let's, let's go on a, a positive path. So you, a lot of the guys kind of get to experience the, the wave that was a success in 06. As you said, mm-hmm. then there's a, a kind of a fall from grace. So walk me through that and then how, you know, as a team, you were able to be pulled together and get back to that um, 08 success again. 07 was kind of the year of the suffering, right? There was lots of things that were negative. Guys struggled. Um, we lose guys. We lose guys uh, due to issues like with the law, right? We lose guys. Um, you know, it's and 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 uh, the documentary touches on it for a moment, but it's stuff like, you know, it's. Um, I think one of the charges was like, oh, you know, this player brandished a weapon or whatever, showed a concealed weapon, and that was the charge, like. No, no, no. The, that, that player pulled over downtown, pulled an AK-47 out of the trunk of his car. And then and then it like shot it in the air. Like when we're talking about like it was it, there were so many just things where it's that when you allow the wheels to come off, like as you got bring guys in, you're playing with fires, that edge where you have these guys that are going to come in. They're coming from really, we've talked about like just terrible circumstances and they just don't have the guidance or support or structure to keep them just of like, this is, it's okay. Like, let's not be in the club. Let's not be in these areas that can bring out the worst. You know, I played with Aaron Hernandez, right? So Aaron comes in in 07. It's a death sentence for Aaron Hernandez to go to the New England Patriots. 
It was a death sentence for him. It was a guarantee where it was when he was in college, he wasn't allowed to go back home. Right. They, they made Tebow his roommate. They did tons of things to try and just put the bumper lanes on the lane to go bowling. Right. The bumper lanes were put up to try and protect him just from his environment, where he came from, all the gang affiliations, all the problems that came with him. But he ends up being, a, you know, it's a dice worth the roll because truly is one of the freakishly good athletes that I've ever seen. And it's tough because we want to be, he murdered, he murdered people. And that's right. We can't, we're not going to be able to like, it's that's, that's our same, but, but please understand we can't be naive. Nobody's all good or all bad. Like this is not, this is not Satan incarnate, right? This is, this is a, a young man that had a, a really tragic and horrible upbringing. And maybe, maybe a TBI. If I remember the documentary, I think sure they opened up his brain. Yeah, they, they mm-hmm. were able to see that too. And that's a big part of it. I mean, the number of suicides that have come from TBI, especially in special forces that have had on special operations, anatomically, that's the thing that controls you. So if we're not bringing that into the conversation, then again, like you said, that wasn't Satan. That was a child, as we think we talked about before, a little toddler like all of us, the blank canvas that had physical trauma, that had mental trauma. And sometimes it's suicide, sometimes it's homicide. And and I think when they opened him up, he was the youngest individual that they had opened his brain. And to see CTE, like you said, TBI, see that in his brain. And they're like, well, it's the worst case we've ever seen for someone this young. That freaks out a lot of us. Because, all right, like I didn't play at the next level, but I have a lot of concussions. Like a lot of undiagnosed concussions and then co- concussions that I just couldn't hide. So those are my diagnosed ones. And so it's like, Oh man, like it's, that was where Aaron was. And so for me, it's so Aaron wasn't, it wasn't like, he wasn't all, an all bad human. Like it just was, he was, he had a great smile and loved to joke around and whatever it was. And, and but there were demons, right? There was demons. They hit. So as you play with this razor's edge, for recruiting and bringing these dudes in it's we had just again it's you have an attrition level of players that either weren't going to make it or we're going to make it and so 07 because the wheel started to come off frustration was there that's where we have a lot of legal issues and we have a lot of guys getting arrested you know overall i think if you take a look at our entire team that i played with while i was there 41 players have either been arrested or have been in jail or prison that i played with and this is like, like, that's, that's just, that was, that's the population that we're working with and insult to injury, even in 07, as we're going through, we're not only struggling with like arrests and discipline and issues, but, and we have a player on the team die. So it's, it was ended up being my roommate and the first guy that I make friends with when I get to Florida in 06, when I'm trying to earn my way was another walk-on kid who dies in a motorcycle accident. So you have not only just turmoil, just generally of discipline, but then you have like a death of a teammate that ends up dying with the girlfriend of another teammate on the back of his motorcycle because we're at a party and she just wanted to go for a ride and they never came back. And that it's the, that devastation that comes with that is just insult to injury in a year where it just was nothing but turmoil. So we get and we lose, right? We, we lose to Michigan. It's terrible. Like it just is. And we finally get through that. And I think it was that if we're going to suffer to the degree that we do in the off season, 
it kind of was that moment of, are you going to zig or are you going to zag? The fact was for those of us that are walk-ons, we're just going to be doing the best that we can to be able to give guys that are going to play on Sunday and make millions and millions of dollars. The deal was for us, it was like, if you're a starter at Florida, you will go play in the NFL. Like that was just the standard. And so for us that we weren't starters, we're still trying to earn our way. That means you have, you have a, if we don't perform on the scout team and we don't give these guys as strong or as good of a look that we can, we're not preparing them to go play Tennessee or LSU that next week or that weekend on Saturday. So there was a lot of pride and effort for those of us that were, were in, were bought in. We didn't leave. We're, we're there to be able to give these dudes a look to just get crushed, to get crushed by these NFL prospect level dudes. And it's just like, and do it play after play, after play, after play. And, but we're nothing if these dudes don't buy in to get it figured out. And I think that that year of suffering and struggle and no one came, no Tebow couldn't do it on his own. And there was lots of good dudes. That's the one thing too, that I want to call out is there's a lot of drama and stuff that gets tied around of like, just, it was Tebow and then all the criminals. It's like, okay. Like there, there were lots and lots of really solid human beings on that team. Sons of pasture pastors, like just, just unbelievable people that were just get continue to do great things, but it's no, no way. It's, who wants to, who cares? Who wants to, who wants to hear this is not sexy. You went to class and now you're a pharmacist. No one cares. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like nobody wants to hear about that. That's, that not, we have that's not clickbait. <laughs> oh yeah, no. It's, you know, we have engineers and physicists and orthodontists and dentists and pharmacists and, and lawyers and guys that have started their own business. Like Jim Barry was an offensive lineman. That was a scholarship guy. He goes to law school and then like becomes a lawyer. And he's like, I don't want to do this. I want to open a brewery. And so he opens a brewery in Gainesville. It's so successful. They moved down to Ybor City and Berry House Brewery is like an incredibly successful brewery that's in Ybor. And that's his, that's his spot. Well, that's not sexy. Well, you, well, what you started a business that's super successful. Good for you. Like it just, nobody It's like, you know, well, this is a really lame documentary because we didn't hear about whatever Aaron killing another person in college or something. And it just is. There's yeah, there's all, but there's there's so much more, and so that was one thing that definitely grinded my gears just a little bit of being like, you know, well, Tebow's the only one, you know, he's the only one doing the right thing. It's like settle down, like this is a team of like 112 guys, like it's it's hard to understand. Like his football teams in college is you travel like 75 or 85 guys for conference games, but you have over 100 players, over 125 players making that team run. So yes, there's one dude who truly is the greatest, nicest human being that truly is exactly as he says he is and how he acts on TV. That's how he is. That's who he is. Tim through and through. He's the outlier. There is no salacious story that's going to come out about something horrible that's been lying about. Like it's, he truly is what he is. That is an outlier and that is unique. There was lots of lots of really good dudes and really good staff that was working to be able to get us there. And so we got the ballers to buy in. Those ballers finally bought in through the work of that staff, that really good staff that was around us. And that's when we come into 08 and come in with our hair on fire with something to prove because we were just, it was embarrassing. We were embarrassing in 07 and then we had such a stellar class come in. So not only did we have a stellar 06 class, but then a stellar 07 class. So as these new recruits come in, 
we've been tortured. Some of these new recruits come in. This is now the first time uh, I was talking about with another guy about this earlier, where it was like, I think this is the first time we see like high school kids are graduating high school early to get into college sooner. So we had 07 guys graduated high school in like December of their senior year. Like they get done playing football, they graduate high school and they're with us at Florida in January. You know, the Pouncy boys are with us in January. And so they come in like they've, had a half of a senior year where they were, and now they're playing football with us. So they suffered with a sooner. So those guys get to suffer as true freshmen right out the gate. And I think that that mattered because these dudes didn't know they didn't do anything. They, they didn't win. They coming in super great. And then they're going to suffer. <laughs> they're going to suffer with us and get to spring ball. And now then we, and then we struggle in 07 and it sucks. And so then you already have this new cast of characters that are like, no, let's go to work. And now you have such a cohesive unit. Like we've spent some time of like that, that shared spring to get to OA. And we had such a chip on our shoulder. And it was like, we lose to Georgia in 2007. Georgia scores the first touchdown and the entire team comes into the end zone and celebrates. Their whole team comes on. Like none of us even move. Like it was so shocking. We have no idea what's going on. We have guys that would punch you for, in the face for way less than such a, a thing. And yet those guys do nothing. No one on our sideline runs out because it was so confusing. And then they beat us. It was so embarrassing. And so in the off season, that mental warfare side, it was, we were punished every game that we lost. We ran stadiums, which is you run every single step inside of the Florida stadium. It's a big stadium. It's all, <laughs> it's all 94,000 plus people. It's you run every step, every section, the entire stadium for every loss. So in the winter, we ran four. In the spring, we ran four. Before we ran for every single one, they brought us into the team room before we run at 6 a.m. So you had to like be in the team room at 6. They would show highlights of the, of the Georgia game. They would show us highlights of them celebrating and them beating us every time we run stadiums. Whenever we did like the midnight lifts and did the lift weights where it was like big hype up, like super torture sessions. If you were a defensive guy, you had to do 188 reps of whatever it was you were doing. Because no Sean Moreno ran 188 yards on the defense that day. All off season. So the chip on our shoulder was so real. That's why when we come out, we just with our hair on fire and we just obliterate Georgia in a way. But that's where now we come in and now it's just, it's a whole nother level that's been turned up and buy in. And now you have the ballers that are ready to go. They're no longer, it's hot, man. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. It's like those days are gone. And once you have guys that are going to play on Sunday that are bought in, now everybody goes. And now the, the machine really starts to move. The last place I worked when I got hired, it was so piss poor as far as is the on-ramp experience again there are some great people in this department but you literally went you did hr shit um you kind of toured toured like you were a, a like you and your family did to the station sure. and then yeah. you um went around the theme parks and you rode rides and that was the bar and i just remember going how how the fuck do you figure out if i'm good or a piece of shit 
by taking me on a theme park day or freaking it was weeks and so by the time i left along with again some good people that were already trying to do this um we actually managed to put in a proper pt crucible for these new recruits and i remember there were the some great people that they hired and they were like this is you know this is the hardest pt you've ever done i've worked for two three departments whatever it is but it was again it was a lot of strong fit stuff you know it was it was very um organized planned pt to bring them together real world firefighter movements um but there were the ones that were like what the fuck i thought we were just gonna ride rides because that's what they'd heard and i think it's interesting comparing that i i don't know if they still maintain that level but once you say hey it's not like that anymore this is how we operate at uf it filters out the chaff at the front door they're not even going to walk through and so sure. but you're going to have in you know for example anaheim or hylia people know it's going to be brutal so right from the get-go before you even lose the people that get cut everyone's walking in knowing it's going to be a meat grinder so like you said comparing now 08 it's a different mindset of the people. And I think this is the problem with this hiring issue. They've continued to lower, lower, lower the standard. The opposite is true, I think, to fix this. You put the standard high, you invite the fucking best potential male and female firefighters in the you know the, the city, the county, the state, the country. They're going to be lining up outside yours because they want to be challenged and they want to get through that crucible and be shoulder to shoulder with other amazing first responders because lives are at stake. And who do you want next to you when someone's trying to shoot you or you're going into a burning building? So it's an interesting parallel again. When when you first went in, when it wasn't this notorious meat grinder, it was a different mentality for a lot of people. Now, three short years later, you've got people walking through the front door going, I'm ready, let's do this. And the accountability does fall to the individuals, right? It's like the coaches can only, they can set the stage. They can put the pressure on you. They can show you, but eventually it, it, it can't just, it can't be the coaches holding that accountability, right? It has to fall to the leaders, to the players to maintain that accountability. Because when it's, when a coach isn't looking, do your feet go down? Like when you're doing, we just brutal, just ab stuff where you're just, you're just getting porn, torn apart of like core type exercises, like leg raises and all sorts of stuff. And it was the coaches eventually don't look, but it's, do you put your feet down? And if you've got a brother that's next to you that gets after your ass, when your feet go down, there's that accountability that now just permeates within the whole thing. And that's when you really know you're making a difference. That's where the struggle has to be, where you have to get guys that are willing just to punch a dude in the face. And it is an element where a lot of times that level of accountability either just it never quite gets built there. And then you, you do struggle. And like you said, it does out the gate when guys come in, it is just, it is now the bar is so high to ride and you don't get as a freshman, as a young guy, as you start to complain and feel sorry for yourself and it's hot or whatever, it's, you don't get that reinforced from the guys that you're looking up to. The guys that you're looking up to are just like, come on, young buck, get with it. Cause this is about to get worse. <laughs> it's about to get worse. And it, it just is, oh, okay. Like it's, I, I don't have time. I don't have time to do it. 
And so that is definitely is that that bar lowering is what we're doing across the board, across multiple industries, multiple areas and avenues. And that is it's a serious problem of all in the guys. It's all make it more fair, make it more equitable. While at the same time, we're we're lowering it to the degree where it's nope, you got to keep it high. And for me, I saw that, right? I got all the way through 07, 08, 09, we win again, right? It's 08, we win the national championship against Oklahoma. 09, we don't, we go undefeated and then get crushed by Alabama in the SEC game. And then Alabama goes to win the national championship. But we get to 2010 and then we saw the bar drop. Like the bar does lower. And those guys, we have our leaders that are gone and just it's, you don't have the same pressure. Cause as you have strong personalities that control a spot, it, when they go, you're going to have a very, you have a void that has to be filled. And those guys that were behind learning, they need a year to get hardened, to build that shell. They don't have a shell. They kind of got to sit in like a soft underbelly and kind of just watch and be like, yeah, yeah, that's what you do. And, and kind of learn how to lead. But they then you're just kind of imitating whatever the leader was before you. It's not who you are. So you kind of have to have get forged. And so that's where college stays so interesting because the staff that we had in 2010 was not the staff we had in 07. Charlie Strong and all, all these guys that we had that were really solid coaches, they're now head coaches elsewhere. They've left. So now you have a new cast of characters and they came from other places. Well, they weren't hard. You understand the staff had to be hardened as well. They were hardened by Myers Drive and dictate dictatorial level of expectation. So realize we lost staff. You lost coaches as well. Guys that couldn't cut it. That couldn't couldn't handle pressure of what I could only imagine of what coaches meetings would look like. So you have just this top-down level to where we get to 2010. You have guys that are no, they're they're from Temple or they're from wherever the fuck. And and it's and they're just like, oh. And I remember about then I'm now a scholarship long snapper. I have a baby. I'm getting my master's degree. Like I'm and I'm only a part of the team for so much because now I'm in class and I'm just getting my job done, snapping for PATs and field goals. And then I go to class or whatever and come back. And just being a part of the meetings, I remember very clearly going to Meyer and being like, no one's afraid in this meeting anymore. Like the punt team meeting, that punt team that Meyer ran, he was the punt team coach. So imagine all that ferocity and intenseness that exists now dedicated to one single team on special teams. That's why we had the number one punt team in the nation multiple years. And it was, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. The level of accountability and ferocity that existed inside of this punt team meeting. There were guys where you'd get done, they'd get motherfucked so bad. You'd be like, take his shoelaces tonight. Like he's going to kill himself when he gets back to his dorm. Like we got to like J-Dub's on suicide watch. Like nobody let J-Dub be by himself tonight. Cause like that was the world's worst meeting I've ever seen. And like this kid was like told that like it was, you know, it's because you can't hold a block for 1.2 seconds. You're going to have to explain to this coach, his family and his wife, why they're going to have to move. Like, why is dad going to have to move? Because you can't hold a block. And it's just such weight and pressure put on you to, to perform. But it was why we were, we performed. And then I get to 2010. Now we have new staff in there. And it, there's none of that. So we'll do better. Do better next time. You know, you, uh, you got to do better, whatever. And I'm just like, what? What is this? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you should need a modium to come into this meeting. 
<laughs> like if you missed a block yesterday, you should have diarrhea before we get in here. You should feel like you're going to throw up. Like it, it is just like, oh, this is going to be a problem. And it ended up being a problem. Well, I want to go back. You mentioned about losing a roommate, Michael Guilford. Um, I think it's it's important to tell the story because as you said, and we'll get into this a little bit, you know, when when things happen, you know, sometimes they're not given the exposure and time that they deserve. And and two human beings lost their life. Um, I'm sure some perspectives were wrong and as to the backstory of that incident. It was your roommate, and, and as you told me before we recorded you even were on the scene first. So if you want to tell me who Michael was, you know, so let's paint a picture of this this man that we lost and then kind of walk me through that and the impact that that had. So Michael was from Bluntstown, Florida. And Bluntstown is a one-stoplight town um, in the panhandle of Florida. And he was um, a baseball player, football player. He's a really stellar athlete. He was a quarterback. Um, he was well built, you know, like, you know, 200 pounds, six, one ish and ran like a four, three, four, four, 40, like freaky fast, especially for a white boy with long blonde hair, looking like sunshine right out of remember the Titans. And, um, just one of those accents you can cut with a knife. You've ever been in the panhandle, right? We're flirting. We're flirting with the bayou kind of area. Like it's, it is a thick accent. And he was, was a, was a riot, was truly a unique dude. And um, that's how ultimately his long hair throws you. So it's a super long blonde hair. And, um, and so that's where initially that's how we get connected is that we're, you know, at the same mess halls at the same time, a friend knows a friend that kind of a guy that I know that's walking on has this other friend named Michael. And so that's where we end up getting connected. So we both just had this drive to want to be able to make a difference and get on, on the team. Um, we end up becoming roommates because, uh, we end up becoming roommates and become friends ultimately because a roommate that he had that was just, it was not working out. And so, um, so like the, the team was like, Hey, would you, I didn't have a roommate at the time, which was like unheard of. Like I first get to Florida and I'm in my dorm and I don't have a roommate, which was awesome. And they're like, Hey, really struggling with this one guy. Can we give you this one guy? And it was, so Michael then was by himself. And so he was just like, thank you so much for taking this dude and not having him be my roommate anymore. I'm like, it's totally fine. And so ultimately when you get out of that first year, you get to move out. And so we all move into a house together. And so that's where now me and the one roommate that, that nobody really wanted, but like it was now we we're all like together because we all spend so much time. And then Michael, we all come together. And um, Michael ends up, if you go back to that 2006 season, so he was crazy fast and was a quarterback. So he's on the scout team and um was it Troy? I'm so bad with names now, man. I think it's, it's a Troy Smith, whoever the, the, there was a quarterback for Ohio state. That was a running quarterback. That was stellar. And I think he was even, did he win the Heisman? Like it was like something like, it was like, this dude was stellar and was running quarterback. So Michael was him on the scout team. And he would go in day in and day out. Like the defense we had in 2006 were murderers. Like these dudes were, and I'm not talking literal murder. Like they were just, <laughs> they were animals, right? They were animals on the field. I'm talking, we would get to halftime or the end of games and teams would have like negative 10 rushing yards on the game. 
Like it just, they were just, they were monsters and he would go day in and day out and just literally get the shit kicked out of him because his job was to run around and get smashed by linebackers and defensive ends. And cause it wasn't like they didn't let up on the scout team quarterback starting quarterbacks had red jerseys that you weren't allowed to touch, but not the orange jerseys, not the scout team jerseys. You, you hit those guys. And so he ends up playing. We go to Ohio State for the national championship in 06. He ends up having like a special ran on him because he's a unique looking dude. He looks like sunshine. He's playing quarterback. And his job is to get the starting Florida defense ready for a running quarterback that can run and gun. So they did a special on him and he hated it because everybody called him sunshine and he hated that. <laughs> so it just was like, you know, but that's ultimately how he becomes known is, is sunshine. And so, um, yeah, so we're at a party in 2007. It's our bye week. Bye week. Some guys have gone home. You know, we've been out and about. This was a perfect example. I was talking to another guy. And we were talking about Michael. And um, we went, there's the Office of Student Learning on campus. And this is where athletes go and you work with tutors and stuff. And um, we had just been in there, the three of us. And we're walking out of the OSL. And um, oh, on our way in, before we go, Michael goes, man, look at how lovely that grass looks. That grass is lovely. Like it just, is, it's, I want to just roll around in it. So we go, we go. And that's what he says, right? As we walk in, that was like, a, that was a quintessential type of thing that like Michael would say, we go in, study, whatever we come out and we're talking and me and me and Vern are talking and we're going and we look and, and Michael's gone. Michael's gone somewhere. And we look over and he's rolling around in the grass and he pops up with his bag and he goes, all right, I'm good now. Like, it just was like, that was it. Like it was that. So that was him. And so that weekend, that night, right. Is we come back. His dad had come into town because the bye week and was staying with us at the house and got him, um, got him new tires for his motorcycle. He had a Ninja, like Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle, super tricked out and, and, um, taught us all how to ride. So it was like how we all learned was on this unreasonably fast motorcycle that we all learned how to ride a motorcycle in our neighborhood off his bike. And so we go, so his dad gets some new tires. Like we're feeling like feeling good, whatever. And dad's at the house. And so we go back to, a, we go to a party and um, house parties for us. It wasn't like Michael was a gamer, like hardcore, like Xbox halo gamer. And so he's actually upstairs playing halo essentially the whole time. And we're just kind of hanging out and he's playing, he's playing halo with my little brother, like down in uh, Kissimmee. So in Kissimmee, my brother's now playing with Michael who's been playing online. So he's playing or whatever. And um, I'm in the party for a while. And ultimately I get a call from someone. Time has passed. I get a call from someone who just said, hey, there's an accident with a motorcycle um, not too far from the party. Call Michael. Because Michael was the only one that had that type of, just had a motorcycle on the team. And um so I call and I call and he doesn't pick up. I'm like, fuck. And so I'm like, all right, well, it was an accident. So it's, I get on my scooter and sco scooters is how you get around in Florida. Like parking is horrible. So everybody had scooters. And so I uh, get on the scooter and I go down. And as I pull up on the scene, it's like a motorcycle has exploded. Like it just is, it's just everywhere. And as soon as I pull up, Michael's wear was wearing my hat so he didn't have his helmet on. So he was wearing my hat and it was in the middle of the road, like 200 feet from where the motorcycle was. 
the way the road ran was it, it would would uh, bow up, and then when it came down, there was a median, and then the other side of the road would bow up again. So if you were looking from afar, it would look like one solid road if you didn't remember that there was a median on this road, and it's poorly lit because it's whatever it's one a.m. and as I'm coming up, and then as I go back to the scene multiple times, years, you know, as the years go on, you can see where the rubber had hit, where he had had hit the brakes, but he had brand new tires. Brand new tires don't have the same stopping power within the first so many hundred miles. So his tires don't stop. And so you see where he's laid rubber and then you see where it made contact with. And then when I'm there at the scene is there's a car that was at the light. And, you know, the back window is just gone and you can see clearly, right? It's, I laid the bike down, contact, sent bodies into the car. At this point, there's a pile. A pile is the description, right? A pile that has a, uh, has white cloth right over it under the car. Um, it had to have like, the, they had to have just gotten there. First responders had to have just been there. So I'm pulling up and I'm looking. And um, it was a, it's a dismembering accident. So Michael shaved his legs. And so it's, so it was clear that his thigh was on the scene, but there was just his thigh. And so I'm now the only one that's there and I'm flagging to one of the first responders. And I'm like, Hey, I said, this is my roommate. And they're like, well, you're not, you're not family or whatever. I'm like, no, but his dad's at my house. And, um, so immediately now I'm in, I'm, I'm in with first responders and kind of breaking down. Okay. Was, was there alcohol? Was this was like, they're going through all the things with me. And it just was no, like, it's just, I know what we're no, like, I know where we were, I know what we were doing. And, um, I'm still not fully there. Right. And so the question does get asked like, well, which hospital is he at? And it just is like, he's not. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Now people have come up, people have come on the scene because probably multiple people had gotten called the same as I had. And so now it was one of those things where it was, I couldn't afford to have his dad or anyone else get notified that Michael was gone. And that was kind of the first responders were like, Hey, this is the deal. Like we have to notify the parents. We cannot let anyone know. So it was a very interesting spot to be in, to feel yourself step back um, emotionally, like five or six steps to where it's like, there's a job to be done right now. So there's no crying. There's no feeling of emotions. It is now I have to go back to friends of his and mine and have them say what happened. And I have to explain that Michael's not dead at the moment and be able to be like, well, it's an accident. No, I think they're, they're, they're working on what I can't even remember what I would have said, but you couldn't give up the ghost. And so the, the first responders are like, we need to go and notify the father. Um, we, will you come, you know, come with us so we know where you live. Um, and then we'll know, I'm like, you're not, you're not going to tell them. I'm like, I'll, I'll tell them. And they're like, are you like, it was like, they took some time. They're like, are you sure? Like that's, I'm like, yeah. Like, this is literally like my best friend, his dad, I'm not showing up and having you explain it to him. And so it's, um. I know you've done it, right? As first responders and for listeners, this is something you guys, everyone's probably has done. And it's terrible to do it. And so we go back to the house and sure enough, you know, we have to go in and 
have to wait, you know, wake him up, you know, upstairs and then explain that his only son is, is gone. And it was the worst hour and a half of watching like agony on someone's face and like disbelief. And um, that's when I started getting phone calls then from the team. So now I'm on the phone with Meyer and on the phone with coaches. And it just is like, what happened? And it was, I, I want to know if I call, I may have called, I may have called, you know, and like left a message or like had called someone and woken them up and been like, this is what what's happened. And so I'm talking to the team lawyer first that uh, it was not as abnormal. Like our team lawyer was like on staff all the time. He actually like babysat us as specialists and like long snappers and stuff. So he was the one that was like, he was an amazing guy. And, um, and so it was very normal for me to have a conversation with him. So I kind of gave him the heads up and then Meyer eventually calls, you know, it's two, 3 AM. And then just going through all the questions was the drinking. Did you swear? Like, are you hundred percent positive? Like, are you aware? Cause now it's not about Michael dying. We're now in damage control. We're now like, this is going to be in the news and this is going to be a thing because there's the young lady that dies as well. And probably it's like her, she's a footnote in that accident, sadly, because she dies with the football player and, and, um, and she just wanted to go for a ride. And so um, that was tough to go through the docu-series Right. And we get to 07 and like October 12th is a day that I don't forget. Like that's when Michael died and it doesn't get mentioned like at all inside of the, the docuseries. And like we step back and my wife and I talked about it. It's like, it doesn't flow. Like it doesn't flow with the storyline or whatever. It would take them from one. And then they wanted to spend a lot of time talking about like Avery Atkins, who they had kicked off the team and had died of an OD or whatever, but he'd like died the year before. Like it just didn't, it, it, that's where like I've talked about like the timelines don't always match up and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But while at the same time, it's like, yeah, if you're trying to talk about like adversity for like a team to go through where like bad goes to worse, having a teammate die is, was pretty horrible. And not even just for like me personally and like having to grapple with that. But like, it's, it was such a, like, it's, I made Michael's dad, my first son's grand um, godfather. And my first son is named Michael. And so it was when my son, Michael was born, Michael's dad was the first person to hold my son, Michael. <clears throat> so there's a connection that's so strong right? From just teammates, again, like suffering together. This isn't somebody I grew up with. You know what I mean? This isn't somebody that it was like, it was, it was a closeness because of that shared suffering that just in a few, you know, a few years of being together, two years of being together was like something that was strong enough. And then to have that be gone and have him be gone was, um, like I said, for a year that that was that year's insult to injury. Well, firstly, I mean, thank you for sharing that. I just, I feel like, as you said, it, it didn't show up on the documentary. You know, the young lady barely got a mention, you know, even when it did happen. And it's important that we tell this story. You know, this is this is a huge tragedy. And what really kind of re resonated with me when you're telling that is, and I've talked about this a lot, the horrors that you see in the accident is 
uber traumatic, but not as traumatic as watching the person that loves that person that they just lost go through their grief. For sure. Yeah, it's it's not even the same, right? Like it's not even the same. Like you're not even in the parking lot of the ballpark of of like of trauma. But I would I wouldn't have done it any other way. Like if I had to make those choices again, I'd make all those same choices again. So and you just, personally oh I'm sorry, mate, please. No, no, you're good. No. So you personally, I mean, you know, as a team, you lost a brother, but I mean this is, you know, a roommate a best friend how did you navigate the weeks months years after that because i mean it's all well and good to do damage control from a legal and optic perspective but that's not a human experience no um those weeks were tough it was tough because he meant so much to me and um the t- I'm, I'm glad that we did it the way we did it so it's going to sound crap it's going to i think it sounds maybe a little crass um, now as I am about to say what I'm about to say, but it was like, as soon as it happens, like Meyer's like, well, will you help put together a memorial service for him? So it was like, he was m- my best friend. I identify his, I have to identify his body and tell his family. And now I'm responsible for putting together a memorial, a memorial service. And so it was like, for me, it was like, well then, yeah, like, of, of course. So it was like this element where it was like three or four days before I finally started like break down and surprisingly, not surprisingly, right. Is that it's when I'm now having to like go through photos and like pick stuff for the memorial service. And how are we going to do the memorial service? Cause this is the memorial service for the, for um, the team. You know, I was a, a pallbearer at the funeral. Like when we went up to Blentstown and we went to go home to bury Michael, like we were up there and, um, and was part of that service and being there. And so it was the responsibility of putting that together was, was hard and devastating. And so that's when I started to kind of like feel those feelings and deal with that grief. Um, and it was horrific. (laughs) It was, it was really, really horrible because it is this immense sadness that's so real, which is just, he'll never walk through the door again. And you, the next week you still play. So it is, you just keep going. Um, And the team did a good job to where it was like, you know, back then it was like those rubber bracelets were like all the rage. Remember like the live strong bracelets. So they had like custom bracelets that were made that said, you know, sunshine. And I think on the back, it was like, you know, be your brother's keeper or something like that. And don't let your teammate down or something to that effect, which was so perfect because like the, the, the ultimate reminder was like the nickname that he hated, <laughs> but, but it ends up being, but it ends up being, so you actually see in the clips, like Tim is, is playing that season or whatever. And he has one of those orange bracelets. Like that's his, that's Michael's bracelets that he wears. Um, so things like that of being able to have like the team come together and it was, it was nice, right. It was nice to be able to have the team be able to come together. Guys shared, um, stories. It was emotional because too, like some of his friends and family came down. So friends from like back home that he had grown up with 
And 06, 07, we're still grinding. Like we're not walk-ons that have made it yet. We haven't gotten to a starting spot. So guys, a lot of guys were super great to us, but a lot of guys were also total dicks because you were a walk-on. And again, it's I, I treat my superstars like superstars. I treat my shit like shit. As a walk-on, you're below shit. They don't know your name. You're just a piece of shit that gets hit and just shows up and the coaches can motherfuck and it's funny or whatever, right? Like it's, there's those elements because it is, it's, it's the chaff, right? You get, you are going to weed out guys that are just looking to be coattail grabbers and trying to just like get a ring because the team's really good and you just show up like it's no, 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 no. You, you earn that ring. And, and so oh six oh seven was tough. That was, was maximum suffering time period. So Michael probably had a lot to say to friends back home of like dudes that he didn't like. And I remember one of his friends gets, one of his friends gets up and is just so raw. And he's just like, you know, it's, it's like, this was, you know, for him, it's like, this is one of my best friends is no longer here. And he's like, and um, it's great seeing all of you. Cause the guys were showing, sharing stories and this sharing stories. And, and uh, he's like, but like, Michael hated a bunch of you motherfuckers. Like he just immediately was just like <laughs> air it out. Like it just was like that frustration for his friend kind of a thing. And I remember being like, Oh no, I'm just like, I, I know what you're talking about. Like, I know who we're talking about, but like, please for the love of God, don't start naming, don't start naming players. Like this isn't the place. And luckily like he composed himself and like stopped, but it was, uh, it was um, moving forward. You know, it's, it's because br- it just is, that's the spot. That's the spot now that, that that's where Michael died. And, and I lived in an apartment. Our first apartment my wife and I get is just up the road from there. So every day I have to drive by where Michael died. And um, it's not something that ever goes, right? It's just me telling the stories now. It gets me choked up. Thinking about it, October 12th comes magically every year. Every 12, every 12 months, it just shows up. And um, and again, it's just a reminder of like it's my, my Michael's namesake is Michael Guilford. So it's just, it's always there. That reminder is always there. And it's on the, the, the minds of guys too. I'm talking to the dude that was with us at the OSL where Michael's rolling around in the grass, you know, as soon as we're talking, you know, before we hang with, he's like, it's like, you know, I gotta tell you, like, it's, I miss Mike. Like I miss Michael. Like, and this was, it's a number of years now that Michael has been gone, you know? And he, so he gets rightly or wrongly, right. He gets immortalized as a character as death does, but he just never is older. I never, he just stays 19, 20 years old forever. That element that you touched on, you have to still keep playing again. You know, as you can imagine, it's the same with the first responders. I mean, I've lost numerous friends in uniform and every third day you show up at seven, eight in the morning, you put your gear on the rig and you do your job. That's good for healing in one respect as far as surface level but there's also a danger of shoving emotions down because you're kept busy with winning football games responding to calls whatever that arena that you exist is in how did you navigate the emotional side the trauma you know whether it was when you were still wearing a uf uniform or maybe years later the trauma how i navigated it in different ways, like it just was, it was, it's a lot of like being like, I'm not a crier. Like it's my wife, she always is like, you're completely void of emotions. Like you have no emotion whatsoever, unless it's one of like two topics and Michael's one of them. 
And it was, it was never a thing too of like being void of emotion, quote unquote, was never even like, like a macho man type bullshit type thing. And certainly for Michael, it just was like, it was my, my parents were super supportive of just like, there's going to be times that I'm just going to burst. (laughs) I'm just going to be bursting into tears and be sad. Um, And that was a lot of that first year and on, um, anniversary dates or, or because it's, I don't know, fucking Wednesday and a memory hits you just right. Or you get, um, those, whatever they're called, right? Like ghost kisses or whatever it is when like something just makes you think of them of like what, you know, it's a moment where it's happened literally last week or the week before I was walking in the yard and there was like, um, um, like a seal had fallen off something that was like by our, our by our above ground pool and it was orange and it's just an orange perfect circle and at first glance when I'm walking it reminded me of that of the of the bracelet and I haven't had it in years right eventually it get, gets broken and gets worn out and so you don't have it anymore and just it was it just made and now it just makes me smile right those memories make me smile and um but those early on it was it was just lots of just pain of like loss and music and wanting to stay in contact with his parents, with his dad, you know, his dad, his parents were divorced. And so his dad, like it was, Michael was everything. And there was, is a weight, uh, there was a weight of responsibility to him to not leave him alone, to have him be felt like that he's alone and so certainly early it was trying to call and then you feel bad for calling. You know, you feel bad for calling because the only reason you call is, hey, this is the anniversary that your son died. Like, that's great. That's that's a great annual phone call to have like a reminder. Like, I don't think the dad ever came back to Gainesville. That's where your son died. Like it was a place that was so much joy and so much hope is now just a place of agony and just no interest. And, um, and so that's where it gets hard because then it's wanting to keep up and do those things. But then it's also like, it's your, you are, that is, you're just a reminder of the death of your, of their son. Um, he did come back to Gainesville, right? He came back when my son was born, but I think that was the last time that he came back. And so it's just, it, it, there's so many elements where you, you second guess what's right, what's right. What's wrong? Keeping up? Am I not keeping up enough with the family? Do I keep up? Is it too much? Not enough? Oh, it's been, it's been, next thing you know, it's like, shit, it's been like six years. I haven't called him in like six years. And um, so you deal with like guilt in there as well of those types of emotions. Um, But it is, there's times where it just is for me dealing with it emotionally it is for me, it's always just been, there's not a right or wrong, I guess is what I just always come back to for that emotion. And it's, and it's okay. If I let October 12th go by some years, it goes by and I don't realize I'm like, Oh, today's the 14th. Holy shit. Like, it's like, it's not, it it doesn't um, getting to a place where it doesn't ruin his memory because there's not, um, you know, an altar of depression once a year because I think about them all the time when it's not October 12th 
And so it just is at the end of the day, like you said, one of those things where it's like, you just keep going. It ends up just being any other day. Um, and, and that's kind of been a short, like long, short synopsis of kind of like how I've dealt with it over the years and kind of that, that roller coaster that I've been on as I think about Michael. And then it, it just is memories, time, whatever those phrases are, right? Like time helps it helps you heal right? you need to have those pieces where for me, it's like, it's, it's not that the gap, it's not that, that, that wound gets better, right? It's, it's always there. It just is as memories, as you make more and more memories, that wound just isn't as large in comparison. It's like, um, well, it's like a wound that's, in a room or whatever it is, right? It's, 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 a, it's a window in a room that's very small. And early on, it takes up all, like it's all the space on the wall. And just as we go, like the room just gets bigger. Like life just gets bigger. The memories get bigger so that the, the window stays the same size. It's the same size. It's the same. Uh, so it's always there. Or, you know, the idea of like, um, you throw a rock, a rock into, the, into a lake. You throw that rock into a lake and it's going to make ripples and it's going to make a huge effect and it's going to sink. And it will sink to the bottom and it's time will go over and those ripples will eventually settle, but that rock will always be there. Um, and that's okay. I want it to be there. Like I want it's I, that memory. I don't want it to go away. So whether it's happy memories, sad memories, whatever it's for me, it's like, that's what it, uh, eternal life is, right? Is memory. So it's important to me that my son is named Michael because then it's, forever is bringing that continuing that name um and then having the opportunity to share the story here right is that it's i want to share because it, it, it immortalized it eternalizes these stories so now that story is with whoever else hears it to where otherwise it would have just died with them in 2007 because then we go on and win the national championship and then it doesn't show up like it just ends up being where it's it's all but forgotten for the people that you know knew almost immediately no, exactly. With with the um, contacting family, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I watch people find new partners, you know, and because there's a lot of male firefighters that were lost and their their spouse, you know, their widow find someone else. And they're like, OK, well, should I reach out? Because now they seem happy. And I think what I've heard from a lot of them is we're all there at the beginning, but then it tapers off. And so when we organically think I haven't spoken to them, pick up the phone. Don't wait for an anniversary. That's when they are going to have the Facebook memory reminders and all this thing. And I watch it with my wife. Her boyfriend before me took his own life on the phone to her on the Clearwater Beach. And so, you know, July 29th, have I got that right? I think it is. Um, you know, there's, there's a physiological response almost every year that I watch. But it's the organic times. Like the other day, we went and visited his grave. We just were on a drive. And I was like, let's, let's go to the graveyard. Let's go sit with him. That is I think the kind of thing and the same with the families you know not an anniversary but just when it actually when you get that ghost kiss in a way you know just yeah. pick up the phone then hey I was just thinking yeah, how are you doing it doesn't even have to go into that conversation another thing that really stuck out listening to you talk and it's a beautiful journey that we've been on because you've talked about so much physical suffering and this you know these physical behemoths that you are and you know the the men to your left and right are but that physical suffering doesn't prepare you for the pain emotionally of 
so many of the things that human beings go through. And obviously, you know, losing someone as close as a best friend is a different level of pain. And so when you're going through that, whether it's a loss like that, whether it's a a kind of downward spiral from a mental health side, you look at the guy in the UF uniform in the locker room and he's like, well, they're all fine. The fuck is wrong with me? Why Why am I being such a pussy? Sure. But how we look and firefighters are a perfect example. You know, we show up on that scene all those men and women that responded that day had a stoic face, I'm sure. But that's a facade. It's our, you know, go time mm-hmm. response. But then after that, that call is going to be in all those first responders' minds for the rest of their life. So having the ability to realize that, yeah, I am physically strong, I am brave, I am whatever, but that doesn't prepare me. You can't callous the soul. This raw emotion fucking hurts and it has to be dealt with no matter if you're an SAS you know operator or you know an NFL player the physical strength is not does not prepare you from emotional pain and that is an entire separate journey that a human has to make on a soul level that if we try and have that you know rub some dirt in it boys don't cry bullshit and um, project that physicality on someone's emotions that's how we also end up with a lot of the overdoses and suicides that we see. For sure. Yeah. So I want to just touch on something and then we'll get to what you're doing now so we can kind of navigate ourselves out of this conversation. Um, there was a, a couple of things kind of suggested on the documentary. Uh, one of them, I forget who it was now, was saying that if um, UF wasn't there, Gainesville would cease to exist kind of thing. Mm. Um I saw the same kind of thing with my last place who, you know, the the fire department was run owned by this theme park. That could potentially make it one of the best fire departments on the planet. Or what I saw was when you have people that have no understanding of what a first responder organization should be doing, preparing, training, etc., it could be very very detrimental and stories of old that I heard prior to me getting there is you had a heart attack in this theme park they would be ordered to drag you backstage before they started doing CPR. So that, that's a perfect stories. illustration. Yes. Yeah. So with that, not loading the question, but you know, you have these, these this football is so um, powerful in the South. You know, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the city is painted, you know, orange and blue. Talk to me about the impact, if any, of that maybe overreach on overprotection of the players or any other area because it just it was an interesting parallel for me having worked where I work just now. Well it yep. <clears throat> so it definitely is right. And, and and again if you're if you're not in the South, it really is hard to fully understand what we mean by like football is like life and death. Like it was like the Florida State game, there were people that would be killed every year. Like at the game in the parking lots. I think it's ultimately what like drives to have that the Florida state game end up like being pushed into like the 12 o'clock spot, three 30 spot. Cause night games resulted in the death of fans all the time. So it just is unreasonably real of like life, life and death, not for us on the field, but like if you're a fan, right, it was a bad deal. And because there's no way to get around it as an athlete for some of these schools, we win in 06. The basketball team wins the national championship in 06 too. So we win 
the basketball national championship. We win the football national championship in 06. We win again in 08. The amount of donor money that comes in to the school and booster money that comes in, the amount of fundraising that happens that allows the university to build dozens and dozens of buildings and upgrade academic facilities and upgrade the, just the university as a whole off the backs of the athletes makes it to where this isn't just a multi-million dollar industry for like the game or the coaches are being paid four or five million dollars a year or whatever like it's this is this is tens of hundreds of millions of dollars on the line for the university so it cannot be understated how you they have to protect the product on the field and so there was this element where it we were protect we 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 were protected in a sense where we were from the very beginning taught very quickly it is you like a lesson that got taught to us all the time by team lawyers and was because we had team lawyers conversations all the time so i don't know what that if that's real for other people but it was that was a regular thing for us and it just was like if you get pulled over for a dui if you get pulled over and you believe that you could test positive for a DUI, you go to jail. Do not blow. Do not blow into the meter. Refuse. Ask for a lawyer right out the gate. And it was like, well, what if we what if we haven't done anything wrong? Ask for your lawyer. They're going to threaten you. The cops are going to tell you whatever. They're going to tell you anything to get you to blow into the meter. They're going to tell you that they're going to take your blood when you get back to the, the station. And it's, it's just, I want to speak to my lawyer. It's like, those are the only words that ever come out of your mouth ever because the truth will not set you free. And there was an element of that where it just was, there was a target on our backs. And so they, on on any athlete's back, because it's when you get arrested, it's not John Fairbanks has been arrested. It's another Florida Gator has been arrested tonight. And then your name comes. And that was talked to us a lot where it just was like, understand it is you hurt the team when these things are happening. And, but we did have lawyers. So we did have lawyers and we did have um, local lawyers. We had lawyers that were just with the team always that were on staff. And then you had local lawyers that would help protect the players and help get charges dropped. So they did get talked about, right. Is that some of these charges would get dropped or um, the one, um, reporter inside of Swamp Kings, you know, it was the idea of the one particular incident where um, Hernandez punches a guy at the Swamp restaurant. And he's just like, we never got a police report for that. Like police reports just disappeared those days. And it just is, it is, the, there is a level of naivety, right? Naivety of like, it's, what do you think they're going to do? Like, get the fuck out of here. Like the idea of like, this is not, it's, and there is an element where it's just like, it's, this is what runs the town. This is how the university makes real money. So there is this element of looking the other way that pulls in politics. And there is, again, like I talked about earlier, like there's a razor's edge. And this was where as a player, you had to be careful. So like B. James is is allows himself to like go in the fact that he bought, bought weed from a cop, right? From an undercover cop. And gets popped and he's sitting in jail. And he's not worried about anything other than who who's the only person he was worried about was Meyer. 
He's like, all I could think about wasn't my mom. It wasn't, it wasn't a, it was just, I'm worried that coach Meyer is going to kick me off the team because it was being the worst case scenarios that you get kicked off the team. The second worst scenario is that you die. Like it just was like, it was, it was, that it was so just, dis- but, but that's so real him breaking that down that way. And so it just is, okay, that is real. That's a real emotion. And the reason why I think that that's real too, is at that time, B James had the potential to be like a baller and he ends up being, I think Brandon's in the, the um, Florida hall of fame, right. As, as a kick returner, as, as an athlete. And, um, but at that time, I don't think that it's a guarantee that he's going to be safe. And that's where it is. It is that razor's edge as an athlete because Meyer says a phrase in the documentary where he goes, um, Brand James is not a bad guy. And it's like that phrase, a bad guy is weighted. That's a weighted phrase that if you're just a, a, a casual listener, you may not catch exactly what that means in our world at that time. Are you a bad guy? Like, do you, is it a mistake? Or is this something that can't be fixed because you're a bad guy? And the phrase bad guy is subjective. And the reality, the truth of it is, right, is that that subjectivity of that word bad guy comes down to, are you going to be able to produce? Can you produce on the field? Did you test positive for a drug test? Are you getting kicked off the team or are you in a boot on Saturday? Because you sprained your ankle and you're technically serving a suspension that week because Florida can drug test their own athletes as many times. We got, we got drug tested all the fucking time. It was, it was horrible. You had to get up at like pull forever early and you had to go and you had to piss into a bottle with someone watching you. It's like first thing in the morning. It's so early that you just get up at like literally the last second so you can make the appointment. So there's plenty of stories of like, punishing the drug testers because like it's early guys like there's a bm that's going to happen here and either you're going to be in audience for it and i'll give you your sample or not and there's wonderful stories of linemen that were so (laughs) furious to have to give piss samples for these drug tests to check a box this is like dude i'm going to clear out this bathroom so just you and i are about to go on a ride together and i promise (laughs) you'll get your you're going to get your urine sample but it was but if you pop positive, that that was an internal drug test. And smartly for the team, it was like, we need to be internally drug testing because NCAA will come once or twice a year. If you pop positive that, there's no saving. We can't help you. And it was, there were lots of guys that they tested positive. It's like, yeah, but like, didn't somebody else like test positive too? And he's like, he, and it's like, yeah, but this guy's a bad guy. He's like, this is the guy, this guy's, and he's not a producer. And so you saw a lot of players, you lost a lot of players, players got t- kickoff team. Or they had to transfer out to other teams um, because they were a bad guy. They had a problem. Um, you know, it, it, it was we had a, a, a player. I remember either my first or second year. He got stabbed by his girlfriend. He got kicked off the team. He got kicked off the team because he was stabbed. And it was because I'm sure I'm sure at some point he probably hit her when he was stabbed or whatever. And we had a rule, right? You can't hit a woman. That was that was like Meyer had some some core values where it just was. You know, no drugs, and you can't put your hands on a woman. If you put your hands on a woman, like you're off. And um, and that was real. And that was that was the one story that Meyer tells, right? Avery Atkins had 
put his hands on a female and that's what got him kicked off the team. And then ultimately he, he dies of a DUI, uh, DUI dies of an overdose uh, a year or two later. But those types of elements. So then B James does get saved. He has to earn his way back. And they did, they tortured the shit out of him. And it, was, like, and it was just a bag of weed. So it's funny because was, fast forward was, a little, you know, 10 oh, more years, absolutely. it wouldn't even be in a crime. Would have been nothing. Right. Absolutely. And it was, it was, a, it was, it was, yeah, like just for himself, you know what I mean? Like just for themselves to be able to smoke a little bit anyway. So that was that situation. But that, that example was if you got, if you got into trouble, it was, were you worth the effort? And if you were, you got saved. And if you weren't, then you didn't. And there were guys that made lots and lots of mistakes because we've called that before. It's they're 17, 18, 19 years old, right? Cam Newton steals a laptop. Cam Newton steals a laptop because Cam is with us, comes in in 07, in that 07 class. He steals a laptop because he's a young kid and he's making mistakes or whatever. And he would have been a guy that got saved. The problem is he threw the laptop out the window, essentially at the feet of the police that he was on the phone with telling him that he didn't have the laptop. And the cops were just literally sitting downstairs and it like landed on the hood of their car kind of a thing. And it was like, oh, we can't save you. Like it, it this is over. Like it's over now. And so there were elements where just you, you couldn't help them. And I don't want, I don't think, and I truly believe this across the gamut for lots and lots of things is that it's, these are young, they're young dudes. These are young kids. Like it just is. I don't want people condemning me for the rest of my life for the mistakes that I made when I was 17, 18 and 19 years old, but you have such a spotlight on you that it just is, you're expected to be so much more than you are. And you, and, and so luckily for the majority of us on planet earth, we don't have people up our ass trying to just hoping that we slip, hoping that we screw up, hoping we say something wrong so that we can get a couple of clicks, hoping that we can get somebody to read the article or whatever it is that makes your day. So there was that poison that I, we talked about earlier. It was definitely like it was the media. They were, that was poison. Like you had to be careful because it, it did. There were elements where for the media that were after us, because if it bleeds, it leads. And everybody loves the story of the rise and the fall. You know, Tiger Woods is nowhere near as interesting if he just as good at golf. It's so much better that he crashes his car and has sex with lots of other people. Like that's way more interesting and we'll be happy to devour and tear him down for that. That's why secretly that's what everybody wants with Tebow. They want it like secretly that there's some weird like underground sex ring that he's a part of or something horrific because that's way more sexy than just a kid that's really, really solid and believes in God and has values and is a great leader that's not sexy at all. Like that's just, in fact, that's seems wrong. Like it seems like it shouldn't be, somebody shouldn't be this good. And now let's talk about how stupid he is and how much we hate him and what a bad athlete he was. It was just like, okay, settle down. Like it just is, there's so many elements to that because it just is. And that's where for UF, but it didn't change fact. Carl, Carl Johnson was the one that was it out in, in the docuseries where he's just like, it's yeah, this is what happened. Some guys got protected. Some guys didn't. And it's in the university's best interest, but it is a razor's edge. It is one of those things where it's you teeter too far to that edge and allow things to happen. And things did happen, you know, major, right. 
has his chain snatched off his chest and he gets into a fight. Later, I think the guy that snatched the chain off his chest, I think that guy dies. Like, I think he ends up dead. But there's no story to that. There's no corroboration to that. It just is. I don't think that that guy continues to breathe 24 hours after that incident. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It just is. That's re- That was our reality. And again, with having that many guys that have been arrested or have had problems, it's you take the bad with the good. For me, truthfully, when it comes to when I think about it, of our team, I don't, I don't know. Like, are we truly, are we truly that unique? Is it truly that is, is there's no other problems or is it just that it came out? Like stuff has come out and has been publicly talked about to the point to where we want, where everyone is just, just salivating when they think it's going to be an untold Swamp Kings documentary and you're going to hear everything that was in the shadows. And then when, of course, it ends up just being like, hey, we're going to reminisce about how awesome this was and how intense this was and people acting like they knew. Like, it, like, there's a lot of stuff in there that you didn't know, that people weren't aware of that happened. Um, and there's lots of stuff that people will never know that I didn't know. Again, for me, it's my perspective and me wanting to do the, the projects that I work on now. It's from my perspective, which I would do it all over again. I don't know if I'd want my sons to. I don't know if I want my boys to play football. In fact, I know I don't want them to play football. If I can get them into jujitsu or powerlifting, or strongman, where they can scratch that itch to compete and dominate and be strong and do those types of things that can save their brain, then that's what I want them to do. I don't want them to... My wife is seriously worried about CTE. Is super concerned. It's We have talks all the time. It's like, if, you, if you're having problems, if you're, if you're feeling depressed or whatever, like she talks to me all the time, like, please talk to me. Don't just deal with this on your own. Don't just one day... If it boils over and you can't handle it, because just as like you said, it's a homicide, it's suicide, it's abuse, it's it's so many problems that pop, and just as you look at these dudes as they hit into their forties and fifties, where then it starts to really rear its head, and so that's where she's constantly looking up whatever the latest research is. What are we doing with psychedelics? What's going on with the different imaging and different testing that can be done to be able to help you know reinforce or or fight against it? And that's where something I, I wouldn't want it for my boys, but I loved it. I loved the battle. I loved the struggle. I loved the suffering because it made me who I am and gave me the perspective that I have now. I would much rather have other people learn from like my words of what these things are and be able to appreciate that. And then we can like in a controlled way, but I don't know if that's again, in the same, in the same breath, I don't know if it's possible. Is it possible for you to learn these things without experiencing them? Or is it only forged like through fire and, and sweat and pain? And it is a hard, I mean, again, performance versus wellness. That is a, you know, a razor's edge, as you use that analogy a lot. And I think just understanding the long-term impact of some of the poor choices that we have made, you know, doing with the best of what we had at the time I think now that we know what we know, it's important to talk about, you know, trying to avoid school age kids, you know, colliding head to head. And, you know, yes, you can have that same level of suffering. I mean, look at a lot of the sports before all the protective gear. You couldn't spear with no helmet. You know what I mean? True. Joe Rogan talks about, you know, the, the, the bare knuckle stuff. 
you know, versus boxing gloves, you, you, you tear, you rip, you break. So you're not getting, you know, as much damage to the head in that particular example. So, you know, I think it is important to, to find ways that your children can find their own path of suffering and forge resilience, but not in a way that, and I use this term all the time, that they become Uncle Rico talking about coulda, shoulda, woulda, because every fucking ligament and tendon in their body has been separated at some point, and or, you know, now they've got um, Parkinson's pugilista, you know, whatever it is from all the impact that they took matching what was at the time perceived toughness but ultimately became a very very life-shortening series of events mm. yeah so we're well, speaking of, of wellness and fitness um i was fortunate enough to be part of uh, you know one of your guests on the gym owner podcast side so talk to me first yeah. about that platform and then obviously we'll get to the walk on one next the the gym owners podcast came from uh, my my partner and I so my business partner and I his name is Tyler Stone, um, you can check him out at Tyler F and Stone that's E F F I N Stone on Instagram. He and I meet together because of StrongFit, so he gets brought on to help StrongFit start their podcast. So he actually sells he he had started the Massonomics podcast. Um, it's, it's a big big powerlifting podcast now. He had started that with friends got into the strong fit space. Cause he was just like you and I, right. A coach wanting to get better, learn how to unfuck ourselves a little bit, really kind of bought in, listening to some of those barbell shrug podcasts back in the day that Julian had done and, um, did the seminar, right. Did all those things. Right. And, and because of his podcast background, I think Julian just had it said, Hey, will you come and help me do this? So he sells all of everything he owns and moves him and his family to Amsterdam. And they are in Utrecht, right. Ultimately in, in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And they start the strong fit podcast and that's what starts. And they do, you know, a hundred plus 130 episodes. Um, I, I, I meet Julian in Miami and I think you and I, at this point, maybe even have like gone back and forth at some point. I think so. Cause it was, it was a smallish community, but it was predominantly online how we were interacting with each other. Yeah. And, and so it was, I was, I finally got to go to Miami. Well, because my education background for teaching, I was a really big proponent back in like the early 2010s where I'm like, you have to take education online. You need to have an online element that allows us to now have the classrooms be more used as like workshop type spaces instead of lecture-based spaces. Just that, that lecturing style just doesn't work. You have to have more hands-on and it helped for me where I didn't have to rely on the child's home experience in order to be able to work and understand what they were doing. So instead of, you know, not just doing fucking homework, which is insane to just be like, well, kids don't do it. So we don't assign it anymore. And instead it's like, no, instead of what we're going to do is we're going to give the kids a space where they're able to watch a lecture, or watch something quickly or learn a concept, come back to the classroom and then be able to workshop it with the teacher. And actually like work together and, or in their groups or whatever. And so because I was building that, this was like, we didn't really have platforms back then that could do these things. So like Google Classroom had just come out. So I was starting to build these things custom, like for my staff and trying to introduce these things. And um, I saw, you know, I went to Julian, did the seminar or whatever. And there was a break at the seminar. And I'm like, at this point, none of his stuff is online. It just is you had to be able to get to a seminar. And he came to the States like twice a year and on the East coast, like once a year, like it was brutal. Like it was just so hard to be able to get, get a hold. So otherwise I was just consuming all of this content on podcasts. 
So the break happens between like the first session to the second session or whatever. I'm like, Hey, you've got to get your stuff online. I'm like, it's not that hard. You would do this, this, and this. And I'm like, it would make it so much more accessible to people all over the world that would really benefit from hearing what you're teaching. He goes, you're hired. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so like I meet him in Miami the next day or whatever for coffee. And then just like, he lays out the vision and then I, I'm, I'm quick to go. Like, if you say we have an idea, like I'm, I'll have it built in the next 48 hours. Like I'm, I'm super quick to let's move. I'm a mover. I'm not big on like, we want to talk about what ifs and talk about ideas kill me. Like I'll talk ideas for about five minutes and then it's time to roll. Like I don't have time to just, well, let's think about things. I want to go. I'm a doer. And so we talked about it, the doing ultimately I get brought in where it's like, he first needs help. Like Julian was is like, was like savant level of dot connecting, staying in this world that he was in. So he's really bad at following up with email. So for me, that's how I started. It was just like, well, let me help get some emails answered for you. We'll start there. And ultimately, I worked for StrongFit for a number of years and of doing just any time that the crew, it was Richard and Julian at the time and a couple other supportive people. And it was like, anytime someone was like, well, how do we do this? I'm like, I'll just, I'll figure it out. And I would figure it out. So I ended up starting where I had a little thing that I could do where I was able, I was capable of just doing everything whether it was website building, funnel building, sales processes, building out all of his online platforms, transitioning platforms, building out the entire seminar structure so that we could then sell that structure and have learning. So it was on, I was in heaven because for me, it's now it's education and people want to learn opposed to the kids who don't want to learn. Any, like I'm, I'm having to convince a bunch of 17, 18 year old boys that we're going to, we're going to care about law we're going to talk about constitutional law and Supreme Court law and this way. And I got them there. Like I was able to get them there and be able to do some pretty unorthodox ways of teaching kids about constitutional and Supreme Court law that were 18 year old, 19 year old seniors at a military school. But this was a whole other level. People wanted it. They wanted the information badly. And that is definitely now this time for sure. You and I have gone back and forth where it's like, hey, how do we get the seminar closer to you? How can we get get to where your people are so you could finally go? Because I don't think you ever did. You ever even get to go? No, no. My backstory yeah. very quickly is I don't know if you even saw this, but years ago he put out a post saying there's a Dragon Ball Z coffee cup, and when you put the coffee in, I think the ball moved or something. He's like, if someone can get me this cup, I'll give you a free training session. So I was That's like, all right, awesome. and it was one of those shitty Chinese websites at the time. Um, sure. And I think Etsy or whatever, whatever it's called. But um, yeah, and I was like, I found it. And I messaged him, say, it'll be here on whatever day. And then I forget, something was taking me to California shortly after that. And so I went to Torrance. And you know, basically, one-on-one, right. -on -one, he murdered my ass for like an hour, <laughs> hour and a half. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, I've listened, so I've listened to that podcast. That's awesome. Well, you at least got some one-on-one, -on -one, right? You at least got it with him. Um. But this is where, so then we get, so, so then Tyler comes onto the team and Tyler and I work so well together. And so as we are doing this fitness education space, working with primarily CrossFit gyms, CrossFit um, athletes and coaches, but there's also a smattering of gym owners that are in the space. And we realized the gym owners were being underserved because that wasn't Julian's deal. Julian wasn't like, how do you operate your business? But um CrossFit is not a franchise. CrossFit is an affiliate setup. So you, you essentially buy the name for not very much money at the end of the day, right? If we're going to compare between franchises and affiliates. So you, you're able to get the name, get name recognition, then you get started. And then um, 
but th- there was no support. Well, these gym owners, they were just coaches that became, didn't want to have a boss and then got their own spot and then did a couple, did some soft gym math and was like, well, I just need so many hundred members and then I'm going to be rich. I'll be rich. It'll be great. And then very quickly realized that soft gym math like has, is killing you and you're barely breaking even. And so we got, we were getting so many questions because they were getting support on the coaching side from Julian and team that then they needed support on the ownership side and just was a piece that we couldn't fulfill. And then COVID happens. And so when, when that goes down, StrongFit is primarily a travel-based live event company. And so everything halts. It gets super gnarly in the Netherlands. It gets gnarly in Austria. Like it just so next level in comparison to like really anything we experienced, even in comparison to like New York and California, Europe was whole, totally different. Um, and it just it grounded us to the point where Tyler and his family just couldn't be out there anymore. And so they came back to the States and he was from South Dakota. So I don't know if you know this, but COVID didn't happen in South Dakota. So <laughs> we had it momentarily in Florida and it's not to downplay <laughs> yeah. the seriousness of the virus, but no doubt, whatever people think of DeSantis, he's done some very bad things in my opinion, some of his choices, but it was very, very middle of the road, lock everything down, reevaluate, open the sum up, reevaluate. And I, I, w- I would say great leadership in that particular thing. So it was very real here, but I think it was dealt with very well. And so that, that element Tyler comes back into, and then, so it's Tyler comes back in. I said, I'm now getting, because I've now done all the, I do so much customer service work, handling all these, all these people that were part of the strong fit world. And when COVID happened, I had all of them reaching out, like, what do we do? And I realized I was having the same conversation, like with 10 or 12 different people, like just saying the same things. And I'm like, none of you guys are talking to each other. Like there's, there's no conversations that are happening right now. And I'm like, and you're not competitors. Like you're in Australia and this guy is in, is in, you know, California. And this person is in Missouri. Like there's no, but you're not communicating. And that's when I told my wife, because I was doing supporting businesses in different aspects of their business. I told my wife, I'm like, I think I need to ditch down a portion of our company to be only gym owners, specifically working with gym owners. And she's like, you realize that every gym in the world is closed right now, right? I'm like, I know, but they're dying. Like they need help. And it doesn't appear like anyone's trying to help them. And so I reached out to Tyler and said, Tyler, this is what I want to do. I want to help just these guys out. I want to help get them afloat because we're now, I had the benefit of just a a treasure trove, a vault of information that was coming to us of just having helped enough gyms and seeing things where it's like, well, this is a solution. Like there's solutions here. Like we could do this, 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 and this. And then, so we started, so we, we started off and we started working with one gym and we started working with another. And then the things were like, well, Tyler pulled in his past life experience. I did the same that I had done with like, um, graphic design and running in my other businesses and within education. And we just kind of mushed all of our stuff together and started running it with gym owners. And that ultimately was what gives birth to the gym owners revolution. And the idea is like, we got to take, you guys got to take control back and have a community and a network of gym owners and personal trainers and fitness professionals that are just trying to first and foremost, putting client success first, like foundationally client success has to be the number one thing that we're going after. Because as we got entrenched in this like consultive world and seeing the players that were here, it's so sleazy and so slimy and just 
churn and burn, baby. Like it just was, we're going to, you're going to feed you leads. You're going to get as many people as you can, and you're going to run them through this. And it just, it's it, it, the, the holistic side that we had been so attracted to on the strong fit side was non-existent in the, in this business world. And we're like, we are firm believers that if you put client success first, and that is your North star, then how we build out the, the actual, um, services and products that you have and how we package it and then how we actually sell it to them. If all of that is aligned through client success, we end up creating this infinite loop that is almost like this flywheel that just gets going and going and going because client success then improves your products. And then you have the sales that then leads to more people coming in, having success. And then around and around and around we go to the point to where now you have something that is really special. Because for us, it was these people that were gym owners, they had the ones that we wanted to work with and the ones that we do work with, they want to make a difference in their communities. They want to help people in their communities lose weight, be healthier, be able to fix whether it's mental struggle or whether it's physical struggle. They have their heart are in the right place, but they have, they have no money because no one has helped like guys just do X, Y, and Z and we can get these pieces in place. And so that is what we've been doing now for two years is working with gym owners, personal trainers. Um, and now some coaches are starting to come in where it's like, you know, my gym, I'm struggling, but I'm, I'm responsible for like just a youth program, or I'm responsible for just these little niche down things that are, that's my baby. Like the coaches let me have commission and I can do this, but I need help. I need support. So we're starting to work with them now in that really like zeroed in spot. And so we have a podcast called the gym owners podcast, and we've done episodes every single week for, two years, we're coming up on a hundred episodes now in the next um, couple of weeks. And it's been a lot of fun for me. I always will. I'll eventually go back to education of like teaching youth, but right now it's, I can't support my family doing that. And so for me, it's like helping that I get so much joy from helping others be able to do what they love to do. Having people watch them be successful and helping them achieve that success is something that just, it's, it, that's what gets me up in the morning to be excited to work on whatever it is that I'm working on every single day. And so that's where this element continues to be. And then eventually I'll probably be able to get back when money is not an issue. And, and as I have more time to go back into the schools and teach in a more formal fashion or in a new way is really what I have the idea to do. But the gym owners revolution part has been a lot of fun. Are you still sitting on that, that idea of actually opening your own school? Maybe eventually there's, there's some people that would have to say yes, that they would be interested in doing such a thing to have a team. Like you have to have a team of people that are, are wanting to come and be a part of that discussion. And that's where it kind of starts where for me, more of a community-based piece where really like for me, a five-year plan is to have a bunch of land, be able to set up a headquarters that then allows me to run a farm, run a restaurant, have our gym, run our consulting piece. Because the fitness side of then like having a space for youth and families to be able to come in, be physically active, while then bringing in the self-sustaining ability, the agricultural part of things, like marrying all my worlds together. Like now you're talking about, you know, heaven on earth kind of a a situation for me where it's just like, I want to just marry everything together that I love to do because I these are elements, like we've said before, where I think it's 
it this is what lifts a community and kind of be a headquarters for that or an epicenter for that to then have that just kind of permeate out and bring in people that are passionate about those things and then have them run those sections. Um, but I definitely see like education and school being a part of that or my version of it. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Tim Kennedy, Green Beret, he started um, Apogee, I think that's what they call it, if I got that right. But anyway, they stand, stood up a school and I'm seeing that happening more and more and more. And again, I don't know what they look like and what their core values are. But this idea of, yeah, you can build your own schoolhouse. You know, if you want, if you want people to have excellent, you know, physical education and exposure to nature and understanding where food comes from and maybe, you know, taking care of animals and whatever it looks like, why not find that yeah. circle of people and, and stand one up in your own community? Because, exactly. you know, maybe that will then help sh shape some of the, the public schools and kind of forge education back into a more holistic path. Because as I mentioned before, in universities and high schools, there are some amazing professors, amazing teachers. Imagine what they could do in an environment that really set them up for success. Yeah, that's where for me is like the idea of like, well, this, you know, how would you change it? How would you change the public school system if you be king for a day? And for me, it's it's the same premise of like free freedom of speech, right? Well, how do you how do you combat bad speech with better speech? It's it's not that we need to like let public let public school do whatever. Like, okay, <laughs> just do your thing. If that's what they're gonna do, that's what they're gonna do. Create a better option. Create like take utilize the fact that we're a capitalistic society then use that to our advantage. We know that we are a competitive people like by nature in America. So great. Let's put that to our advantage. Let's build a better product, put a better product into the market and then let your local market decide. And it will, it will put pressure on everything else. Either they'll lose or they will elevate and then everybody wins. And that's where it's too much people have, whether it's the gym space, any, any of these spaces, it's too much of a scarcity mindset. There's enough pie to go around. There are millions and millions of people there's tens of thousands of people inside your communities to be successful you need a hundred you know to be successful you need you know what i mean if that 100 150 people can literally be success so it's, it's a fraction of even the smallest communities and so it's just there's enough pie to go around you don't have to go to war just you do better and the rising tide lifts all boats I've seen that even with podcasting. You know, I've had a lot of people come say, "I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of starting one, but I don't want to step on your toes." And I'm like, "There are enough toes to stay. You know? <laughs> there, 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 enough there aren't toes. enough feet around to even worry about that." But I've seen that also on the other side, where there's a couple of podcasts that I'm very aware of in this kind of space that it's it's uber apparent to me that are threatened by this one and don't share and you know all that stuff. And it's 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 crazy to me because I look at all these as part of a giant tapestry that's moving the needle forward. But I agree with you completely. There's this this feeling of being threatened. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, link arms, do this together. And like fire departments, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel because they're so siloed. Communicate. Take down this we're better than the county or the city bullshit or we're better than PD or, you know, city versus county, whatever it is. And as you said, with the gym, there's enough for everyone. Knowledge share. And even globally, and I've I've talked about this a lot, you know. Look at the UK's healthcare system. It may not be perfect, but the philosophy behind it when fully funded. Look at Portugal's drug decriminalization. Look mm -hmm. at Norway's prison system. You know, Finland's education system. There are so many good ideas and people have already done the work. Figure out how you can be part of their community. You know, and then, then that way, you know, like you said, we all, we all benefit. 
don't allow this and I talk about this a lot the business certainly in the US the 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 pinnacle is a monopoly well there's nothing more destructive than chasing a monopoly chase right. a community yep exactly well that's your one podcast the other one now the, the new one the walk on podcast so talk to me about that community that you're building as well walk on podcast is brand new it was one of those things where it was always an idea in the back of my mind and just was always gonna be like there's this would be fun and then that was it and then uh, the idea always was there's so many great stories to be told of walk-ons that exist across all sports multiple decades right people that just have amazing stories of perseverance of having a thing not getting the scholarship that we all want and still going after it anyways, and then succeeding. And I think those are amazing stories to be told, but it just was like, it just from my own team that I was part of, but it was always just like, I'm way too busy to be doing this. Like to have that idea and it would die. And then Swamp Kings came out. And when Swamp Kings came out, I'm like, okay, I haven't told the story. Like I haven't really dove in, told story. I had enough people where my wife and I had a podcast where we like talk about like what it is like raise a family and do the things that we do. And, and we had to have like, you know, an episode a month and we've been doing it since like 2017 or 2016. And I told a story once back in 2019 at my backstory and I, people constantly were like, this is a great episode. Like this was a great episode. Like I would love it a little more. It was like, yeah, oh, like when, when am I going to do that? And so when Swamp Kings came out, it was like the world's kind of all aligning. And my buddy's like, you need to do this. Like, you need to do this right now. Like, right now, right now. Like, sprint right now. My wife's like, are you insane? Like, there's no way. Like, it's like everything's so, like, we're so busy. We're so busy. All the things we're doing. I'm like, it's in the zeitgeist. Like, right now is the time to jump in and do it. And so that's where the Walk On podcast has started, where it's, I tell my backstory in episode one. Episodes two, three, four, and five are companion episodes that go with the Swamp Kings docuseries. So me and another walk-on that was on the team with me, we talk through the episode. We've taken notes as we've watched the episode. And then just as things come up, we then tell stories and we tell our experience of what it was like in 2005 to 06, and then in 06, and then in 08. And we just go stay chronological with the, with the series. And so those are companion episodes that they're releasing this week. So like episode two, which is the 2005 up to the Tennessee game in 06. So this is like episode one of Swamp Kings. It dropped today. And then as, as of this recording, right? And then as this week goes on, it'll slowly trickle out. So then I'll have all these companion episodes where it was great just being able to sit down with former walk-ons and be able to talk about our experiences. And then moving forward, I'm looking for people that have great stories, the no walk-ons, no people that did these great things and be able to have them on and have them tell their story. Brilliant. Well, you got so much out there. Where are the best places for people to find you online and or social media? The easiest place is consistent. It just is on Instagram at jbanks. So J-B-A-N-K-S-F-L as in Florida. So at jbanksfl on Instagram. That's where you can find me and all my things. Shoot me a DM. Um, more than happy to keep the conversation going. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to forgo all the, the closing questions we've been talking for. I think it's four and a half hours between. <laughs> we had a hurricane in between. So, you know, yep. we did a little bit last night and then we finished the rest today. Um, it seems to have blown past now. But uh, I want to thank you so much. The reason, you know, I don't tell people, oh, my podcasts are this long because I've had people that have only had 30 minutes to offer. Beautiful. Let's talk for 30 minutes. And then I've, this is probably one of the longest ones I've done. This and, and Emily from CrossFit as well. I think that was like four and a half, five hours. But sometimes you're in a conversation like, 
it hasn't ended yet. Yeah. It, it just hasn't. It There's no normal organic stopping point. And we've been through so many different areas and your perspective in education and obviously your time in UF and, you know, dealing with grief. I mean, all these different facets to this have been invaluable and you've been to some places and, and thank you for going there. That courageous vulnerability. You say you don't cry much and, you know, you you went to a place that, that does make you cry. And that is so important for people that have seen you on the field to know that same man has been through this trauma and struggled the way that, you know, a human being does. So I want to thank you so much. And I thank you to Julian for, for connecting us, you know, at the very, very beginning. But thank you, you know, for, you know, the friendship that we've maintained, even though it's been at a, at a distance. But as you said, with the universe, I don't know what it was about this, this uh, documentary coming out. And I just saw you and Tyler and you were flashing your rings on Instagram. And I'm not, a, as you know, I'm not a football fan either. It was yeah. just like, this is it. This is the time when you and I need to speak. And clearly, four and a half hours later, you know, I was right. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so vulnerable and also so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, James. I'd happily do it any other time. Thank you.